0: Bored at home and nothing on the tube? Out of cereal and smokes? Looking for something to do on a weekend night that won't end with federales knocking at your door? At Vineland Lanes, we have something for everyone. Do you have a predilection towards the violent? Hurl one of our well-weighted spheres down an alley towards defenseless wooden targets and watch the explosion send it all into chaos. We offer a variety of targets to topple, including hippies, corporate scumbags, FBI buzzkills, and... So many more! Do you desire moderately priced, mostly edible, borderline yuppie cuisine? Head through the squeakiest stores this side of the San Andreas Fault and into a restaurant that was once called Upscale by a friend of the chef's sister and try our cream of zucchini soup or rearrange one of our vegetarian tostadas across any of our high-end Mica tabletops. When you finish your meal, ask for our food psychics to come to your table and perform a 100% accurate reading of your leftovers let our gourmand gazers scry through your fries or divinate what's on your plate and provide you with a guaranteed prophecy and for just an extra 1999 american they'll provide you with the meditative mantra you can use in everyday conversation to slip it in and blow someone's mind you for joining us in Mapping the Zone, a podcast dedicated to informal discussion of the works and context of Thomas Pynchon. My name is Kate, and I'm one of the co-hosts.
1: I'm Cody. And I'm Will.
0: Today we're going to be discussing chapters three and four of Vineland. We are going to be down a couple uh, of people over the next um, three weeks, We're gonna, so we're going to have a couple of shows where there's only three of us. Uh, this week, Luke is unfortunately not going to be with us, so it'll just be the three of us uh, digging into these chapters, but... So much sort of happens over the course of these early setup chapters that we we didn't want to delay the discussions as a whole, uh, just to make sure that you guys still have some content to listen to, and so that it's all fresh in our minds, especially as we head into a holiday season where people are probably looking for something to listen to in between awkward dinner conversation at Thanksgiving. Um, so that being said, Will, do you have a summary for chapters three and four?
1: I believe I do. Great. Chapter 3. Our next scene is delayed by an extensive flashback to the first time Zoid had crossed paths with his arch nemesis Hector. The DEA agent had arrived at the Corvair's group home with a loose wallet full of bills available to any junkie who might have who might have a dime to drop on a supplier. Zoid's own principled stand was slightly undercut when Van Meter accidentally let loose some ultimately useless intel when he mistook Hector for a connect, giving him an opportunity to prove he was good for it. with a a flourish of a five. Their relationship blossoms in slow motion before our eyes, with scenes of previous meetups and refusals to buy-in set in various locales. They finally meet in real time at the local bowling alley, where Hector does something unspeakable to his tostada. Hector, acting his part, he alludes spookily to Prairie before moving on to the real subject for Nessie, her mother. Apparently, she'd been under witness protection if a lower priority sort, but had disappeared recently. With an earnestness Zoid cannot believe, Hector confides the secrecy of it all, even within the federal agencies. Nobody knows what's going on, but her file's been properly wiped. They briefly revisit old contests, leading Zoid into some good old-fashioned romanticizing of his opponent's distilled essence of cop. He doesn't seem like his old self today. Still brings an offer, like always, Zoid's to be bait for his ex, so the Federales can at least begin to keep track of her again. This time, Zoid seems to be considering it for a moment at least, but then something seems to agitate the Fed, and he starts to voice some personal injuries that Zoid had made to him by a negligence as a friend. They begin to reconcile when the check comes, which is punctuated by the arrival of the National Endowment for Video Education and Rehabilitation Special Operations Unit here to take Hector back into their custody. Suddenly, his strange theme tune hums and novel additions to his vernacular made sense to Zoid. He was a tube freak, and he was at large. Chapter 4 Thanks to neighborly obligation, Zoid was out of his car, but had in turn borrowed another, a pickup with a camper top. He finally made his way to help a local farm with their interminable tide of crawfish an hour late. He knew one of the owners from a chance meeting at a saloon the night that Furnessi had left, so of course the drive brings back some painful memories. She'd made him feel square. Him! He'd been working as a day laborer and playing bars along the inlands at night, and in a whirlwind they'd been married in the same fields he'd grown up running wild through. The reception was raucous but in no way wild, and they felt set for their best lives together. Years later he would still astral project to her present location and pretend she hadn't left. Later that night, unloading on Van, Zoid blames himself as much as her. Meter, helpfully, pokes fun in the direction of the man Frenessi had chosen. A few people let Zoid know that he'd better watch out some fed had been looking for him, so he drops his dime on Hector with, never. Apparently, though, he wasn't the only one. Goosebumps. He shrewdly calls Prairie at work, telling her to ask Isaiah and his bandmates to hang around until he could get there when he does. After meeting up with a few other old pals, mooching a few bucks off them and getting a few more heads-ups, he finds Hector at the Bodhidharma Pizza Company. He updates the doctors at the rehab and heads in. Hector was telling Prairie what she'd wanted to hear. He'd been talking to Furnesi and was willing to talk to take her to her. This is a line too far for Zoid to tolerate, but the situation is lightly diffused when Hector unveils the name of the other fed. Brock Vond, the man who took Frenessi away, and more. Wheeler's house was being seized after a search discovered supposed tons of reefer stashed throughout it, and he was to be tried in a civil RICO suit. This is when Hector's illness shows. He sidetracked from whatever his supposed purpose is, trying to get Zoid and Prairie to sign the contracts for him and a partner to televise the events. Luckily, the rehab doctors parachute in to to seize the maniac and protect him from himself. Zoid arranges for her to go along with Isaiah and the band for a while so he can figure out the real goings-on. This brings some domestic tensions to a head as they try to sleep in the back of the Baru truck. Prairie hops into the Vomitone's band the next day, neither of them at all sure when they'll see each other next.
0: Okay, so there was a lot to unpack in these uh, second chapters. Certainly... Significantly more in my opinion than than was present in the first two. But I just wanted to start with everyone's overall thoughts with the chapter before we dig into the actual material here.
2: Yeah, I I again love um what's what's happening here. And and you're absolutely right in that there's a lot more happening um in these two chapters. I think the first two chapters, you know, we're we're kind of getting to know our main characters a little bit more so than than diving into the actual plot. So I think it's in these two chapters where we kind of start to lay the groundwork for a lot of the uh themes and um plot points that that we're gonna see as the story progresses. Um it's um a really good set of chapters. Uh some of the funniest parts uh that I remember from this book are in these two chapters and we'll we'll definitely get into those. Um but I think it, it does a really good job, I think, in in these it's like 30 some odd pages, I think, altogether, um, of really of setting everything up and, and kind of really setting the table for what we're uh, in store for as far as, um, you know, Zoid and his various relationships. Um, we're getting some backstory, um, you know, between the relationship with him and, and Hector and a little bit uh, of, of detail on Furnessi and, um, you know, some more of his relationship with Prairie. Um, so I, I really enjoyed these chapters. I had a really good time reading them. Um, I think, you know, as, as we talked about in the, in the first episode, um, this is really, I think a, a great example of Penchon's ability to, uh, do more with less. And, you know, even though these are, I don't want to say they're short chapters because, you know, it's, if you average them out, there's, you know, 15, 16 pages per chapter. Um, but there's so much going on, and it doesn't really feel as, as confusing or obtuse as uh, some of the other maybe larger works where you have to do a little bit more work to uh, parse out specifically what's happening on, on each page. I think this, this flows a little bit easier. Um, it's a little bit easier to comprehend the goings-on, so it makes for not necessarily an easier read, but a, certainly a, a very pleasant one.
0: Yeah, I, I, I agree completely, and I think that it's, it's again, uh, like we talked about last episode, It's these chapters are a real showcase of Pinchon getting into the emotional aspects of his characters and mm-hmm. digging into what makes them people. Um, we had remarked back when we were talking about Crying of Lot 49 about the the scene where Oedipa is driving and thinking and kind of how her her thoughts drift in and out as she's she's taking different freeway exits and she's she's going about these different sort of errands that she's running on and Pinchon certainly does that in chapter four again i'll I'll, I'll be significantly extended as zoid is going about his day you know selling the crawfish and then also you know trying to figure out what he's going to do about hector and then and then eventually going and seeing his daughter and all of that the way that Pinchon slips in and out of Zoid's memories as he's kind of recounting his marriage and his previous life in the Corvairs and as he's kind of thinking about the different things that have led him to be in the position that he is now. I I just loved that whole section of, of Chapter 34. Just that, or not 34, Chapter 4. <laughs> um, just that whole extended sequence where you get to know his backstory and where his mental state is at and the different decisions that he's made over his life and, and how those two things have kind of weaved together to make him the person that he is. It's, it's such an amazing piece of writing. And like we had talked about last episode in the introduction in how, in a lot of cases, like the people that Pinchon writes about in his books up to this point, didn't feel like real people. They felt like Pinchon Characters certainly, and they, they felt at home in the world that Pinchon was writing. Mm-hmm. That is very much not the case, especially in Chapter Four. Like everything that Zoid is remembering and thinking about, and kind of breaking down as he's he's on this sort of one man odyssey involving multiple cars and different locations and everything is is just very true to life. And all of his different observations about his marriage and especially their wedding and everything that occurred there, mm-hmm. I. I I love it. And then you know chapter 3 kind of working backwards. I agree. I think that the the relationship that is shown between Hector and him is is a very similar thing. Like he's he's having those memories and he's remembering kind of his life and what led them to cross paths with one another and also you know you've you've Hector sort of weirdly attached to him and talking about how like he kind of knows that there was never going to be any chance of him flipping him to becoming a CI, but he just, he couldn't leave this alone. Like he just, he just wanted it so bad. Yeah. Um, and all of the different strange kind of ways that they cross paths. Like it's, it's so interesting to get to see that spelled out. And yeah, I, I agree. I think that all of the character work being done, not just from the protagonist side, but also who is currently the antagonist is, is just so excellent. Um, And I love the opening paragraph of chapter three. So I was just going to read that um, because the way that the way that Pinchon describes the relationship is is just incredible to me. Um, It says here it was a romance over the years, at least as persistent as Sylvester and Tweety's. Although Hector may from time to time have wished some cartoon annihilation for Zoid, he understood from early in their acquaintance that Zoid was the chasey he'd be least likely ever to bag. Not that he credited Zoid with anything like moral integrity in resisting him. He put it down instead to stubbornness, plus drug abuse, ongoing mental problems, and a timidity, maybe only a lack of imagination, about the correct scale of any deal in life, drug or non drug. And though not as obsessed these days about turning Zoid, they'd had that crisis long ago, Hector still, for no reason he could name, liked to keep on popping in every now and then, preferably unannounced. I, I, yeah, I just, I, I, I genuinely think that Vineland contains some of Pinchon's best, most easily digestible writing. There seems to be a particularly strong vocal quality to the book, where having it kind of read aloud, and and me and Will kind of mentioned this before the show started, but that's something that we kind of do if we're getting lost, or just if we want to go back and revisit something, there's something just very pleasant about reading a lot of these these quotations out and it it almost feels kind of like you're i wouldn't necessarily say like hearing someone tell you a story in person but maybe like watching a documentary um or like a talking ahead segment and something like that and yeah i i i absolutely love it um i'll save any further discussion for for later in the show what did you think will
1: I don't have much to add to what you both said. I think everything you pointed out are the the primary drivers of what I love about these chapters too. It's it, it's interesting that you you point to the the relationship between um to between Zoid and Hector because these these two characters I think and that that scene in chapter 3 really demonstrate what what the reason that I struggle with with describing Pynchon's earlier characters as two-dimensional. I mm-hmm. think what he excels at is demonstrating how two differing perspectives can align in a certain way. And that it, that's it's what I love the most out of this chapter 3, is the way that you can see point for point how they disagree on everything. And yet, both Hector and Zoid, even if Hector is being a little bit melodramatic, Mm -hmm. How it it, it does make sense that they would feel a kinship and a connection to one another and it it does feel like you know when they're sitting there having their conversation even though you can sit there and think well Zoid means this and Hector understands it this way you can still understand the thread that both of them are engaging on and I think that's it's beautiful and Mm -hmm. moving on to chapter four it's it is just an incredible kind of flattening of time there's yeah. there's a certain kind of person which Pynchon explores more in an in, in inherent vice. Mm-hmm. Uh, a certain kind of stoner who for whom they've lived in the past for so long that it just is the world around them. And I've never seen it portrayed in, in a way as seamless as, as in chapter 4 here.
3: Yeah,
0: definitely. I, I think anyone who's had a serious relationship, not even necessarily a marriage, but just like a, a very long-term like serious invested relationship can certainly relate a lot to the flattening of time element of when you think about that person, when they come back up in your in your life whether it's something you are choosing to think about or you know in in the case of zoid rearing its ugly head kind of back into your your consciousness in the way that your brain just kind of plays through all of that in in a way that is very particular. um and and I think Pinchon captures that in, incredibly well here. I, I've certainly had moments like that in my life, thinking about old relationships or, or people that I was very close to, even not necessarily romantically, but even from a friendship um, standpoint. Um, I'm glad that you brought up Inherent Vice, because that was one of the biggest things that I want to talk about. This work, and I guess probably the California Trilogy as a whole, feels very synergistic with one another. I, I, I won't bring up the main reason why this is very relevant to Crying of Lot 49, because we'll get to that at a later point. But there are a lot of aspects to this, like you're talking about, with it being like a particular kind of stoner that is very similar to Doc, obviously. But also there are a lot of direct connections between Inherent Vice, the the last book in the California Trilogy by publication date, and this book. Um, Both of them have references to Gordita Beach, Which, of course, we don't get as much of the interiority of as we do in Inherent Vice, because that's where Doc lives in Inherent Vice. But also, the relationship between Hector and Zoid is kind of a proto relationship for, you know, Doc and Bigfoot. Mm -hmm. And we also have, like, the Corvairs mentioned, who Zoid played in, and they are mentioned in Inherent Vice as being part of the kind of scene there near Gordita Beach and that kind of alternate reality Manhattan Beach that that Pinchon is writing about you know we talked about it in Mason and Dixon that these that these books could be in the same universe to use a very popular like modern description but it's certainly sections like this that that certainly add weight to that theory but even even more so I just wanted to get everyone's thoughts on how these two books seem very enmeshed together and the kind of thematic thing that that Pinchon is driving at in writing a longer book in vineland about sort of the aftermath of of that scene and and people straggling after it kind of starts to blow up and then finally returning to it in inherent vice what what are your guys thoughts about the way these books are connected to one another and 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 how they they seem synergistic in a lot of ways to to what
2: they're up to i think a large part of not just the the California trilogy, but I think of, of Pinchon's work in general is kind of examining the, um, cyclical nature of, of not just history, but of, of like cultural zeitgeists and how they impact, um, society at different times. And we kind of, we touched on this in the last episode, but, Mm -hmm. um, I I think a lot of it comes down to how the, you know, the, the faults and the failings of, earlier generations lead to the, the change that inevitably comes up in the later generations. And while those themes are certainly present in, in lot 49 and inherent vice, I think they're, they're much more explored in here because of the fact that we are jumping between these two time periods, uh, unlike in those other two books where we're really just kind of stuck in that one specific time set Mm -hmm. Um, with, with Vineland, you know, we are seeing how different, uh, not just the characters were in in the sixties, but how different the the time was and how different um society was and how you know the things that were done and, and accepted as the norm in one time were not in in the other time and so um you're really with this specifically Vineland um you're really getting to see the kind of broader picture and the and the full impact of of how all of that has worked itself out whereas with with lot 49 and inherent vice it's kind of hinted at you know with with inherent vice uh and, and lot 49 we see how the the kind of burgeoning real estate boom uh and obsession is starting to make uh, you know these these impacts and ripples here and there but you don't get to really see what comes of that it's just kind of implied where it's going to go whereas in vineland we we are seeing the impacts of that kind of hyper capitalism starting up at that time and how it's starting to get its foothold and, and not, uh, and, and also with like the, the police presence in, in society and how it, it's gone from what it started as in the sixties and, and what it eventually morphed into, um, in, in the eighties. And so, um, I think it's, it's really kind of fitting that this book sits in the middle of that trilogy as far as publication date, um, I think it, it, it's good to have those other two kind of bookend it and, um, you know, act as a, a sort of, um, a pair of, of, uh, I guess what I'm, what's the word I'm like, I guess warnings of, you know, this is the kind of thing that can happen, you know, over time, but you really see how it fleshes itself out, um, in the middle. And I am at the point now where I'm starting to like cycle back on my own point, so I will let Will <laughs> <laughs> have a word here.
1: Well, thank you. Uh, I, I'm i going to try really hard to not get into my own big, crazy theories.
0: Hey, you can't get into your yeah, own big, dude, crazy theory?
1: Yeah. It's far too early in the book. <laughs> okay. But I, I, I will say that I think it's very interesting how... If you look at the books chronologically, there's no inter- diegetic chronology, you know, within within the storyline of the books. What what happens in series, you know, it's it's all kind of pretty straightforward. Not, not in terms of if you read Crying of Lot 49, you can expect what happens in Vineland. But mm-hmm. if you are alive today or any points past the 70s and you read the books... You kind of got what the point was in terms of social criticism, broadly.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: But what's interesting is when you look at that in contrast to the publication date, because uh, you know it's it's it is a, a depending on your taste a flaw of his of all of his early works. But Lot forty nine is viewed as kind of comical. You know, people we have talked about how this book is vineland is deeply funny, and a standout in that regard. But also, Lot Forty Nine in general is discussed as kind of a light-hearted book, which I find hilarious.
0: Yeah, that's not a light-hearted. <laughs> no, it's <story>. not.
1: <laughs> but if you if you do read it in that way, if you read it as a dissection of tropes and don't, if you look away from the way that he is explicitly telling you to, you know, mirror it onto reality in some ways and therefore ignore the social criticism. It's funny. It is it is funny, and a lot of the characters you can read as two-dimensional and just kind of skate across it.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And this and Vineland is hilarious, and it has all the depth of character, but the, the, the hilarity is still there mm-hmm. in kind of the same way. Inherent Vice is different, though. It's really dark. Like, it's mm-hmm. it is a comic book in terms of a comedic book sorry in, in terms of like genre but it is excessively dark there is mm-hmm. not a single bright point in that entire plot line it is just one depressing thing happening after another and in the crying of lot 49 you at least have the this the simultaneous vision of of female liberation touched upon you still, and in Vineland, you still have this, um, you have this core where even as you watch as these crises hit this family and their friends repeatedly and all at once, you you can sit there and say, yeah, but they have each other, and you can feel it and believe it. And mm-hmm. that's not the case with Inherent Vice. Yeah, you Doc know, is very alone. <laughs> exactly, Yeah. And I think that that is a really important way to look at Vineland in conversation with the other two books here. It is the one that gives you a solution. It might not be a solution anybody who read Gravity's Rainbow when it was published thought was going to be what Pynchon thought the solution was. Mm-hmm. But that's the solution he's giving us, and it's the one at the end of the story. At, at yeah. the end where we're talking about this family who have been torn apart repeatedly repeatedly.
0: Well, I th- I, I, there's, there's a lot of good points you made there, but I also think that getting back to what we talked about kind of in our introduction to the book in the last episode, that sort of him finding the solution, I think, is probably a portion of why this took so long for him to write. Certainly, of course, there is the, the aspects that he was writing to much bigger books, at the much larger books, rather, at the time. But I think, too, if you would ask Pinchon, when he published Gravity's Rainbow, what his idea for a solution would be, he'd probably just like kind of stare at you and be like, Oh, I don't think there is one like there. There. And without getting into stuff at the end of the book, because we'll obviously get there in a, in a, in a few weeks time. But like, I think that is also part of why this book kind of exists is to provide a cap to some of that thematic material that he was working towards and kind of his own development and his understanding of the world around him and sort of what he wanted his fiction to do. And so I think that's that's a really good call out as we continue through the book to think about not just from our perspective as as the people kind of moderating these discussions and and providing this for our listeners but also for our listeners to consider as they read the book with us if that's an exercise that they're engaging in is what this book represents from a standpoint of his of his social critique or his his view on culture and and family and sort of the uniquely american things that he writes about um that was very that's very well stated well
1: yeah and it, it it comes down to the fact that some some people are listening to this and are already emailing us saying gravity's rainbow gives us a solution the solution this is not a spoiler for anybody who's planning on reading and hasn't yet the solution in that is Kierkegaardian. the solution is to leap without looking and to expect there to be a solution at some point right yeah which is, that's what he did, you know, he lived his life on the road for the next 20 years and eventually came back writing a family drama, Mm -hmm. you know, that that (laughs) he found where he landed and you (laughs) disagree, you disagree, but there's a certain kind of tone in more recent readings of Vineland that view his personal solution to the problem as some indictment against them and I think that that's a wrong-headed way to look at it too.
0: Natu- naturally, to their conversation at, at Vineland Lanes and the the kind of, I guess, weirdness that ensues is the way that I would that I would describe it. This is not a normal um, conversation. No, it's, <laughs> it's something and, else. And certainly gets to the idea that, that Hector is not okay. Um, so what what did we what did we think about? their, their actual conversation and, and sort of the, the attempt at a a connection that Hector is, is pushing towards here.
2: I really, all I want to say is that the the fact that, uh, Hector is described as, as doing a somewhat permanent Ricardo Montalban impression (laughs) just killed me. Like I, I could not, not read his lines thinking about that.
1: Yeah, that's that's exactly what I was about to say. I, I want to apologize in advance to anybody who listens and is offended by what will inevitably be one of us reading Hector's dialogue and, and slipping into it. And I, I hope it's understood that the, the presence of the accent in the book is a joke, that Hector is doing a stereotype of a stereotype of himself. Mm-hmm. That, that we are not trying to mock anybody that we, we are yeah. just the character is layers of irony of that and so it's hard to keep in your mind that he's not doing a stupid voice so just in advance apologies to anybody <laughs> <who's> sensitive <laughs> around that because it's going to happen and we can't avoid it because it's very well written like the accents are in here and everything if you're just listening yeah. to this without reading along
2: Mm-hmm. And if you don't know who Ricardo Montalban was, just go don go on YouTube real quick. You don't need to hear a lot. Like five seconds is about all you need <laughs> to really get what this is getting at.
1: Yeah. He, he, he is who you think he is. If you, if the name sounds familiar, you're not confused.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And just from a, a plot perspective, like we learned that, that, Zoid's ex-wife was in witness protection and has has now disappeared and Hector is coming to him to try and get him to find a way to get her to resurface and that is sort of the the gambit that he's trying to push Zoid into but we also get a reveal that Hector is addicted to television um, (laughs) which happens in probably the funniest way because if you have read the book before you definitely pick up on his like preening obsession, like the fact that he can't stop looking at the television, the fact that there's references to like, him speaking referentially to television through the course of their conversation, and even like,
2: including He's whistling the flintstones.: Yeah, exactly. The, the, for an extended
0: period of time.: <laughs> Which is definitely one of the funnier moments in this chapter, Allah, you know. Isaiah 2-4 waiting in a room, you know, for who knows how long. Like, I can't imagine <laughs> sitting across from somebody who's just whistling the Flintstones theme, theme yeah. song for uh, an indeterminate period of time. Um, and obviously television and television addiction is is a pretty big thing that comes up over the course of, of Pinchon's work. We talked about it a lot already in previous episodes, and he seems to be very explicit in this book, at least so far in talking about that as a potential danger or disruptive element to somebody's life. Certainly it's, it's affecting Hector in a significantly negative way. And, um, we get towards the end of it, just to kind of cap off this aspect of it, the, the arrival of, I don't even really know how to describe the people from never like a, (laughs) a, like, hit squad of of, yeah goon squad of like jackbooted thugs who appear (laughs) in like uniforms that made me that reminded yeah digicam and like uniforms that remind me of like UN soldiers is the picture that I had in like my head reading this
2: I think Um, it's it's funny because it's they're done in such a TV trope style yeah, That it lends a certain irony to the fact that they're, you know, they're doing what they're doing, but it, like, yeah, they're, they're, it, it, that whole scene when they, the first time we meet them and I, I kind of want to spend a second on, on this whole TV thing. Cause I think this yeah. is a really important, uh, thematic element of this book, but mm-hmm. just the, like the way they burst into the room and the, and the way in which it is described is so 1980s television. Like that shit <sighs> is straight out of Nash Bridges. Mm-hmm. Like it's. Um it's exactly like like you said, like it's these jackbooted dudes that just, you know, they're breaking the doors down and they're yelling and screaming. And it's so over the top. And it's it's absolutely hilarious. And if you don't like if this is your first time reading it, it's a bit of a gate crash moment. <laughs> yeah. For mm-hmm. sure. As <laughs> as is really like the whole thing with Hector's obsession. Like it starts out so subtle, like the little Flintstones thing is so subtle, but it's so perfect for setting the table of Like this, this man is absolutely out of his goddamn mind. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but yeah, I think it's, you know, we, we have talked before, especially in lot 49, obviously in lot 49, not in Mason and Dixon, but, um, about Penchon's I don't want to call it an obsession, but he talks about TV a lot when it, when it is relevant, you know, obviously to the story. Um, and I think that it's, it's never more explicit than it is in Vineland, um, or condemning. Um, Yeah. yeah. It's, you know, I, I think that what he's essentially, you know, I don't, I don't want to get too deep into it because obviously it becomes a much bigger thing as the book goes on. But I, I think ultimately um, the idea of television as both a, a means of, of entertainment and escapism and, and honestly art um, mm-hmm. is, is in this sort of like really delicate balance with it as a tool to distract and it's, you know, it, I, I don't, I'm trying to say this without getting too far into uh, ahead of the book, but I, I think that's, it's that's really, if this is your first time reading it, that is really, really, truly something to keep in mind um, as you're going through this is, yes, TV can do a lot of good. A lot of good has come from it. You know, there, it is, it is a good form of entertainment. It can be fun to watch. But it can also be a very dangerous thing, um, almost to the point of, of being a drug. Mm-hmm. And um, just, yeah, bear that in mind if this is your first time reading it, because that is super, super important to all of this.
0: Yeah, I'll just, I'll, I'll just read their entrance um, in, into the story before, before we get to Will's reaction to it, because I think it's, it's, worth, it's worth going through. Um, where it says, Madre de Dios! An oddly panicked, high-pitched Hector was up and running for the kitchen. Luckily, Zoid noted, having left a 20 on the table, now with a platoon of folks come crashing in after him. What was this? All wearing identical camo jumpsuits and crash helmets with the word never stenciled on. Two stayed by the door, two more went over to check the bowling alley. The rest went running on after Hector into the kitchen, where there was already a lot of screaming and clanging. Dude in a white lab coat over Pendleton shirt and jeans now came strolling in between the two door people heading for Zoid who beamed insincerely never saw him before <laughs> it's it's yeah it is such an amazing um entrance of this aspect of the book into the narrative
1: yeah absolutely it it what it really captures there is what what kind of leads into what I'm going to theorize here i do actually uh, actually <laughs> Sorry, I have read this book before, um, but (laughs) I, the television part, when I read it the first time, just, I couldn't grapple with it. I don't know, it just didn't, I didn't grab onto any of what the social uh, criticism was meant or could be meant. Um, Mm -hmm. So I, you know, I'm going to say some things which might come across to somebody who's read the book, like I am getting ahead of myself. If I am, I'm not aware of it. (laughs) um but the, it it seems to me that this scene can be read very explicitly about as explicit as far as Pynchon's social criticism goes it, at the the uneven way that the the drug war has been waged versus the the war on television which he is essentially proposing here mm-hmm. as a as a historical counterfactual um, that that you can see a lot of the issues that people ascribe to, like smoking too much pot, in Hector's behavior here. He's mm-hmm. all over the place. He doesn't fit the tone. He gets really he gets really melodramatic about like seriously, man. You're complaining about the fact that this guy who you've been haranguing for years and threatening to lock up for his whole life and take away from his child, you're complaining that he doesn't ask you about your family enough. <laughs> Like that, that is outrageous. And it's, it's all these things that are, you know, oh, drugs make you crazy. And in this case, it's Hector, the guy who, he, who Zoid has been sitting around thinking, man, Hector is like this badass guy who's married to his job, whose entire internal life is about remembering and memorializing the people who he's had to so cruelly put down in pursuit of what he believes to be right. And at the same time, you see as the guy's completely unraveled because he just watches the Brady Bunch too much, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> and it's obviously, you're not supposed to sit here and think that Finchin's telling you that television is like heroin or something. Mm-hmm. But he, th- there, is, there is this deep, deep morass between the way these two things are treated when the main difference seems to be that one of them is controlled by a central authority or a small set of central authorities.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and I think getting to sort of an in, in, in extra textual comparison, like as, as the, the resident like David Foster Wallace person, there is a lot that this book kind of circles around that also Infinite Jest talks about in relation to television and television or entertainment as an addictive force and how that has the possibility to be just as destructive as something like drugs. They, they, they are compared somewhat in that, in that other text. And I think it's interesting that this book came out, you know, four years before infinite Jest did. in that these two authors who probably knew each other. And at the very least, David Foster Wallace was, was an admirer of Pinchon at one point in his life talked about them in very similar ways, kind of ahead of, the time where that would have felt like a completely relevant critique. But I, I do think that there's, there is an interesting sort of irony that exists in that Hector is this, this federal agent who was known for busting up, you know, drug rings and drug dealing. And that was like the thing that he was trying to get, you know, Zoid to to turn on his friends to deliver information for and how, whenever he kind of over the course of their conversation, refers back to all of the money that zoid could have made he, he keeps referring to like yeah maybe you would have had enough money for more than just drugs and maybe you would have had money for more than you know just you know the the descriptions of what he has that zoid might have been spending his money on um while also being a different kind of addict i think is just very is very interesting and also i think gets to some degree of what we've been talking about at least in in the last episode and now of the the expansion of not just entertainment culture, but consumer culture and, and how those things became incredibly weaved together in the home in a way that I don't think a lot of people were prepared for because, you know, TV in the 60s and 70s was this kind of like new invention and this this like interesting thing that suddenly everybody had the access to in their own home Whereas once you get to the eighties, it became weirder for someone not to have a television in their home and it became Mm -hmm. stranger for them to not engage with it as their primary sort of maybe stress relief or like way to unwind at the end of the day. Um, And there, I think became a very decreased focus on, on what that could mean if you were going home and turning on the television for four hours and then going to bed which is very much a situation that, that we still live in, albeit, you know, the delivery mechanism for it is is a little bit different. Um, and yeah, I, I just find it very interesting that Pinchon is talking about those things, you know, 30 years maybe before it would have been a relevant topic for a lot of other books to be talking about or, or yeah. you know, you know, a, a larger sort of social climate issue. And uh, yeah, I, I think that it, it gets to the heart of kind of, The cultural aspects of this book that we've been we've been already discussing and it's it 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 is as all three of us have now said very difficult to talk about this without getting into things that happen um as as the book goes on so i I suppose i'll i'll leave my thoughts there as a pay attention to that as 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 we continue um because it is it is a big part of this book and it sits very squarely at the heart of it um did we have anything that we wanted to add on to that? Or do we want to talk about weird theories as to how Hector treats his food?
2: <laughs> well, so real quick, I do want to just piggyback on something you mentioned earlier about Zoid, um, about Hector kind of needling Zoid about, you know, you could have made all this money um, and and bought things that weren't drugs. Because mm-hmm. we do also in this chapter kind of get a peek at Zoid's sort of uh, dual personality is the I get or his duality I guess in in that he's you know this this relic of a of an era that was all about you know anti-establishment and and you know dismantling the system and not working with the man and, and all this but he's not above taking Hector's money he no. just won't <laughs> spend it on drugs like he'll yeah. buy everything else under the sun with it um but he just won't buy drugs with it so it's and I think that was kind of uh you know uh emblematic of of a lot of of those um 60s counterculture icons like i I mentioned some of those people before you know both in the lot 49 episodes and and in our last vineland episode you know guys like like jerry rubin went on to become a uh political figure in california and you know even abby hoffman who essentially started and like really was the the sort of figurehead behind a lot of the uh, the 60s counterculture um to the point of you know he wrote steal this book and he was he led the the campaign to try to levitate the pentagon um <laughs> and all this other weird stuff and then he became an fbi informant in the 80s yeah um you know and it's it's it was it's depressing it, like it really is because I, I spent a lot of my high school like really kind of deeply uh, entrenched in a lot of 60s counterculture uh literature especially abby Hoffman stuff and and to see what happened to all those guys uh and and women too like it was it's depressing as hell and it's not it you know it's not there's trying to think how to say this they're they're not without blame they obviously made the choices that they made that got them to the point where they where they ended up but i think it also shows a lot of of the power of the system that they were fighting against that just brutalized them and beat them down to the point where they really had nothing else to do, but start working with them to stay alive Mm -hmm. in some cases. And I think we kind of see that in Zoid. Like there is still that kind of fire in him to, to damn the man, so to speak. But at the end of the day, like he, he just had, he buckled under the, under the weight of it all.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, while still, clinging to this idea that he didn't Uh,
2: yeah Um, it's a delusional thing like he really truly they they believe that they are still fighting the fight but in, in reality they're just you know they're the next stage of of what they were being pushed towards
0: yeah and i i think even one of the things that i guess i would point people towards if they're looking for a real life examination of something like that maybe maybe more so to to like Zoid's perspective of of the delusion of it, rather than sort of the cultural figures that you've mentioned, but still has intersection with that is um, the story of the person who who caused Fred Hampton's murder. Um, there was a movie made about it called Judas and the Black Messiah. That's pretty it's pretty solid. Like I'd recommend people look at it. But um, the the individual who was working with the FBI to supply like the coordinates of Fred Hampton's house in Chicago and what the layout of his apartment was. And eventually the, the sort of, I don't know what drug it was, but the drug that was slipped to Fred Hampton that caused him to, to stay asleep when the FBI raided his house and eventually shot him. He did this very weird interview on television. I want to say Thirty years after Fred Hampton's murder, where he was kind of telling his story from within the Black Panthers, but he didn't get into the fact that the entire reason he was present in the Black Panthers was because he was an FBI informant, and he was trying to erase his own sort of uh, chance at being sent to prison for unrelated crimes, and then there is a really haunting moment in this interview that is is at the end of Judas and the Black Messiah where when people ask like the, the interviewer asks him like what he would tell his kids about his time in the movement and he is fully convinced that he was a part of it like he's fully convinced that he did his part for the struggle and for the culture and that he was not acting in the way that he was and like that is obviously delusion to a a similar but probably more severe degree given the actions that he undertook but this is a very real thing that occurred mm-hmm. um with a lot of people from you know the these low level members of the Black Panthers who were put there by the FBI all the way up to the people that you're you're talking about Cody so it's it's very much in dialogue with a lot of real life history and i think now that i'm kind of talking about it like this if if you'll indulge me for a second i i think that a part of the reasoning behind why maybe this book is overlooked or or less considered for all the reasons we talked about is also the fact that pinchon puts less of that on the page there are segments of gravity's rainbow or his larger texts where he will just tell you certain parts of history or things that are relevant to the other things that he's discussing, you know, stuff like the Herrero genocide or the existence of the, the, the Schwartz commando and and things like that. He sort of allows the reader to get that history through his own writing. Whereas that's not present in Vineland. Like Vineland is in conversation with the real world history that all of this is getting at, but it is significantly less written out on the page for the reader to experience. It requires the reader to actually investigate and kind of search that out to a greater degree than they probably would have to with, with some of his other work.
2: It's kind of a Pro hides behind like the whole story, like Isaiah two, four just yeah. like lurking in the shadows. Like it's there, but it's yeah. not like, you know, it's not going to be upfront and present, but um, yeah, that's a really good point. Uh, Will, did you, yeah, go ahead.
1: Yeah, I I just, um, I wanted to add that I, I think it's poignant that the only thing that doesn't get a response in their conversation, uh, you know, they're going back and forth, not necessarily very rapidly, you know, they're taking breaks to, to eat in between, they're sitting and thinking and just kind of staring at each other and throughout the scene. But the only thing that actually doesn't get a response is... Hector's kind of cathartic rant at the end of that stretch of the conversation where he says hey all right fuckhead try this you are going to have to die yeah remember (laughs) that death after all them years of nonconformist shit you're gonna end up just like everybody else anyway ha ha so what was it for? All that living in the hippie dirt, driving around some piece of garbage, ain't even in the blue book no more. Passing up some really serious bucks you could have spent not just on yourself, but your kid, but on all your beloved bro and sister hippie fools who could have used it as much as you. And I think uh, one way to read that is, you know, Pinchin putting the putting his voice behind Hector's, but I don't... I don't think that's what it is because Pynchon has shown time and time again, he doesn't feel the need to couch himself in a character's voice. Mm -hmm. He's fine just just addressing the reader. But what I think the reason it's telling that, the reason I think it's telling that Zoe doesn't respond to that is that it's the only thing so far that isn't founded on anything but like television tropes. Yeah. As we see yeah. in the next chapter, Zoid is constantly thinking about his own mortality. Maybe not directly, but there's you don't think about you know the last fourteen years that you've gone without your ex, without like constantly also thinking about like endings in general. Th- those things are not separate, especially not in the mind of a massive stoner.
0: Right. Um, well, especially, too, because Zoid refuses to refer to Furnessi as his ex-wife. Yeah. Like, yeah. He, he, he can't reconcile with that, so just refers to her as his wife. That, that is very telling of where his mind state as a whole is really at.
1: Yeah, he, he's not some—like, he is not the stereotype. He is the old guard. He is a, a hippie. He is a sour old hippie, but he is also somebody who understands that he's going to die. That was never his issue. His issue was that his life kind of got pulled out from under him.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: As, as a lot of the the people in that countercultural movement happened. And I think that's why so many of them just became weird Christians as we've already talked about in the last episode, (laughs) or just kind of, you know, had a safety net behind them where they, they could just go to orange County, which I believe is also referenced in this, in these early chapters too. And, and just start a, a completely different life for themselves. It was never, it was never something that they were fully committed to in the sense that it was, it was something they were sold out on. They, they always had somewhere else to go and Zoid does not. He's, he's, he's still there and he's still tr- doing what he can to, to carry the torch, so to speak. <laughs> so did, did we have any theories about the, the food mentioned and in particular why Hector is, is, Dismantling his his lunch
2: <laughs> i i I mean i I think the only thing I can think that explains that is that it's it's maybe a not a coping mechanism but like a distracting mechanism to kind of keep his mind off of TV related um anything it's yeah. you know something to something else to hyper fixate on if only for a little while because he he I mean, he really is going about it in a very meticulous manner. Mm -hmm. Um, So it clearly, and I think they even, like, if I'm, I don't have the page in front of me, but it's described as, like, he had a, a methodology or something to that effect in mind. Like, he really had a way of doing this, that it wasn't just like he was bored and pushing his food around.
0: Yeah. And maybe this is reading too deeply into it, but a lot of people who are detoxing from drugs can't eat. Like, they just don't have that don't ability. Have appetite, yeah. yeah, they don't have an appetite, or they just, like, play with their food. And I, I don't believe there's really much description of, of Hector really eating much of it. it. It is just sort of this weird, like, nervous deconstruction rather than, than anything else.
2: Yeah. He began to take apart, take it apart piece by piece and reassemble with something that Zoid could not identify, but it which seemed to hold meaning for Hector. So, yeah, he, there's, he's doing it for a reason. It's just not for us really to know but i yeah that's kind of what i get out of it
1: yeah i i just interpreted it as um well these two chapters are really the the strongest in terms of their relation to noir tropes Mm -hmm. yeah and i i took it as part of the double take for the uh for the oh my gosh the the never people have arrived is that the reader is expecting in this context the 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 pin to drop that Hector's waiting sure. for, yeah. to be something like a you know, one of his coworkers who doesn't know he's working this case or something. You know, I think I think it might be an, an elaborate part of that whole thing. Mm-hmm. Just just the the slow slow anxious ticks forming, like, like Cody said.
0: Yeah, like, like scenes in, that's a good point, like scenes in Noirs where they meet in diners or whatever, and one yeah. of them is constantly looking over their shoulder, nervously yeah.
1: fidgeting around instead of actually... Yeah,
2: yeah, moving a cigarette around in their hands or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: yeah I, like, uh, to be fair to, to Hector, I do think that um, there's, some, there's some truth to the fact that a tostada is, a, as much as I do love them, they <laughs> are an imprecise eating implement.
2: Yeah. You're you're basically eating yeah. the plate your food's on, so Yeah, exactly. That's the
3: best
0: way to put it. Yeah. If we don't have anything else on on chapter three, that does that does bring us pretty cleanly to chapter four. Um, where Zoid is has has left after uh his his conversational partner has escaped through the kitchen. Um and is trying to, to kind of go about his day the best that he can trying to figure out a, what he has to do from here. And also we just get a snapshot of, of what a day in the life of Zoid Wheeler is like. Um, And that, that brings us to, to this very long section of him driving and and doing errands where we get a, a glimpse into their marriage, their relationship, particularly the, the, the multi-day wedding party that they, that they had after they got married and, and, really what is what is as i mentioned at the top of the show some of my favorite stuff from these two chapters uh what what do we think about this this section as he's recounting his marriage and and the way that they that they not only got married but the connection that they had
2: i do just want to point out before we talk about that that we we should not overlook what zoid is driving
0: uh, oh, during yeah. this
2: time which is <laughs> if you've not seen the the camper shell whose unusual design gave the vehicle some cornering problems it's like a Baba Yaga on wheels. Like it's a, <laughs> it's a cabin. It's a it's a literal cabin on the back of a flatbed truck. So, I think knowing that just makes all of it so much more funny.
1: Well, yeah, and it's it's the back of a of a Datsun flatbed yeah. flatbed truck. Yeah, <laughs> so it's t- tiny. <laughs>
0: yeah which he doesn't even get to drive for that long because he has to give it to someone else to yeah. borrow too
1: and then seems to get a worse car in, in return for that no so actually he he that is the car he ends up with at the end of the chapter that that is what he's driving around i think he's yeah because his, his, car,
2: his car gets taken away um, oh yeah right yeah yeah
1: it, it took forever to untangle that and along those lines um really notable omission from this section is that we don't see how fernese and zoid meet
2: like Mm -hmm. it
1: it is it feels like you do you get to see a snapshot of where zoid is at when they meet and you get to see his like mental state as during the whirlwind of their of their meeting and their early relationship but you don't actually get any description of the circumstance and that is impressive
0: Yeah, that is true. Because it, it, really, all you do get the actual description of is their wedding ceremony and the after party. Yeah. But it doesn't. You're right, Will, in that it, it doesn't feel that way. Actually, going through it. it, it does feel like you get a broader sense of of their connection and the, the relationship that the two of them had. Um, and ultimately, a little bit of like sort of what doomed it too, because there's the there's the quote where you know almost immediately after they get married zoid zoid says something to the effect of you know don't you believe that that love can like rescue anybody or 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 fix anything i don't remember his exact wording and just kind of furnessi just sort of doesn't respond to that and just kind of looks at him as as if that's one of the craziest things that she'd ever heard um which is an interesting response when you're you're your wedding which is essentially a symbolic declaration of love was was such a massive affair that lasted multiple days. Yeah. <laughs> so
2: I I think that's a really telling part of of the whole Zoid and Fronesse relationship, I think. Um yeah. because it's it's it it comes off really as very one-sided, um, in that Zoid genuinely cares about fornessy mm-hmm. and just doesn't ha- seem to really have that reciprocated like that specific line you were talking about, um fornessy, do you think that love can save anybody? You do don't you at the same time he hadn't learned yet what a stupid question it was. She gazed up yeah. at him from just under the brim of the hat um it's you know he he's he genuinely does love her, and yeah. it's definitely not whether or not she she really loves him. She's definitely not showing that same kind of compassion and that same sort of energy um, that he is. And I think that's also exemplified in his in his dream album. Um,
0: oh, yeah, that's so depressing.
2: It's it's yeah. it is tragically funny. It like I, do, I want to read that little passage real quick. So sure. uh, this is on page 36. Uh, Zoid's dream album someday would be an anthology of torch songs for male vocalist called Not Too Mean to Cry. He had arrived in this recurring fantasy at the point where he'd take advertising space late at night on the tube with a toll free number flashing over little five second samples of each tune, not only to sell records, but also on the chance that Furnessy, up late some 3 a.m. out of some warm Mr. Wonderful's bed, would happen to pop the tube on, maybe to chase the ghosts away. And there'd be Zoid at the keyboard in some outrageous full color tux someplace along the Vegas Strip, backed by a full house orchestra, and she'd know as the title scrolled by Are You Lonesome Tonight? one for my baby since I fell for you that every one of these disconsolate oldies was about her. So it's, it really is. It's really sad. Like he, he is carrying so much love for this person that he, that that's his, like he's this, this is what he's envisioning is like, I know she's out there with someone else, but maybe there's yeah. something I can do to declare how I feel that will ultimately win. And like, that little bit tells you so much about like th- how important to his life to his identity mm-hmm. that is, and it also reminds me as as the uh, the resident elder um, huh. on the show of of those late night television CD ads uh, that we mm-hmm. that were so prevalent in the eighties and nineties um and are are very well described with those little five second clips where you would, you know there's the titles are scrolling by you'd get the one in yellow that's playing for five seconds and then you know it was always 1999 or whatever for two discs of of pure new age classics or whatever it was
0: yeah those good old time um,
2: life collections those, yeah the old time before columbia house <laughs> there was time life um yeah but no like it really yeah it's it is really um it 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 really is a very tragic you know portrayal of zoid and i i can't help but feel for him because i think that's kind of what we're meant to but mm-hmm. you know at the same time it's it it's just really sad that he that you know he can't let go of this it's something he knows there's really no chance of getting back but yeah you know it doesn't matter
0: and i i think like i <laughs> Maybe to step into like a weird theory, or just like maybe I'm being crazy, because I guess that's gonna be what we're doing all across Finland. Um, <laughs> there, there is something a very similar to bring up inherent vice again to their relationship, and the one between Doc and Shasta. Yeah, Although yeah. the one between Doc and Shasta is much more explicit on the page um in the narration that just one day Shasta kind of stopped being a hippie and just sort of. Decided that she was going to go Hollywood and 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 leave all that behind. And then when she I really, really love the description of her return to his apartment at the beginning of Inherent Vice, where it says that, like, in back in those days, she could go, you know, not so many days with anything as complicated as a smile. Or as a smirk, maybe it says. But now she was laying some heavy-duty, like, facial puzzles on Doc, and just the the way that it's clear that she has com- so completely changed from where she used to be. That I feel I feel is is almost a more explicit description of of the relationship between Zoid and Furnessi, in the sense that Zoid is like a very to use sort of the the literary trope term like hopeless romantic person and he's he's hopelessly romantic about a lot of things like he's hopelessly romantic about this relationship and the way that he still after they've been divorced can't reconcile the fact that he is you know he now has an ex-wife as opposed to a wife and he he still dreams of the days of them getting back together and dreams of you know Maybe this this isn't over, and and maybe some way I can convince her to come back to me. Even though, like you said, Cody, she is with other men in his own fantasy of this. Yeah, and also just that feels very comparative to him holding on to the 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 dream of that alternative future of 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 the hippie world taking over the the mainstream world, and just the fact that he is still he's not able to let go of that either he's hopelessly romantic about what that represented and what that could have been and he still is in this position now where where he he can't he can't move past either of them and i think it 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 gets to that yearning for an ideal yearning for an ideal either as you know a marriage ideal as so many people who get married do have but also yearning for that cultural ideal of what if these things were perfect and what if you know whether it be Pro, or harder drugs or, you know, just changing cultural attitudes hadn't broken all of this up. He's, he is incapable of, of seeing any of those things as, as passing him by in the decade that this book is set where it was firmly passed by, like shot in the head and buried in a shallow grave. And (laughs) yeah, I think it just gets, it gets to be so revealing about just Zoid's, mental state as a person and how he navigates the world and, and views it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think there's a, a tendency in, in everyone, including you two um, to, to, <laughs> wow. read Zoid, wow. to read Zoid as, as, <laughs> um, as like a, a, a failure of a person. And I, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth. I don't think mm-hmm. you're saying that but uh, you know there there is the, there's a tendency to say this is somebody who has not who doesn't work in some fundamental sense yeah um and first of all i think especially in contrast to the way hector talks to him in the previous chapter it's notable that this this the setting for all of this reminiscence he is doing a job it's not on the books it's not you know it's not he's not employed but he is doing a job. He is catching crawfish and he is delivering them to restaurants. That is a job. That's not nothing. Yeah. Yeah. And on top of that, before we get to the the moment where he asks for whether love can save anybody on the same page, it says uh, she and Zoid were sitting together on a bench under a fig tree. And I pointed this out at the beginning of the book and I'm pointing this out, not for the same reason, but, um, especially in conjugation with uh, Isaiah 2 four's name and all of that conversation. One, and, and also keeping in mind the title of Vineland, what, what we have is this set of quotes from various parts of the Bible that George Washington, our friend from Mason and Dixon, uh, used repeatedly throughout his... Uh, presidency and his campaigns prior to the creation of the U S that all of this violence, all of this pain was in pursuit of everybody being able to pound their plowshares or sorry, to pound their swords into plowshares and pruning hooks and to sit underneath the fig tree. Mm. And right there, we have this scene of Zoid, Reaching what he thought he was fighting for in some way. He was still fighting the good fight as far as, you know, his political beliefs. But for him, he made it. He got to his fig tree. He got to the success point. And he's still trying to get back to that success point. He still has that goal in mind. That is what fuels him throughout all of this. Whether it's whether he can or cannot let go of Fernesi, he is um, to, 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 point to the, the part of the Bible that, that, that most notably includes the, the fig tree f- phrase, uh, Micah 4:4. 4, 4. The context is about how the Lord God will come to, will come to Israel and protect them, that nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore for. Everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree and no one will make them afraid. And this is coming immediately after Hector has been trying to shake him for, uh, honestly, like, a, you know, 20 years or something, but, you know, the, the immediately previous scene. I, I think it's important to keep in mind that Zoid is, is a, whether you think he's a schmuck or a wreck or whatever, he, is, he has a mission. It is mm-hmm. a, a yeah. hopeless one but it's there.
2: No, I I totally agree. I I think really, I think Zoid's flaws are part of what makes him a great character and, and makes, makes me as a reader, at least really root for him more. Like I really genuinely care um, about his journey and I I do want him to, you know, kind of get out of his own way at times. Um, I definitely, I don't, I don't, you know dislike him or anything like that view him negatively like i I think he's just a very flawed individual, and I think that um his the the way in which he is represented is very um uh accurate to a lot of the people at that time of his at, at that age
1: yeah, absolutely I'm not trying to like correct you guys I don't think no that's no I what know are saying but just <laughs> the, the way the way that it can be easy to talk about him can kind of erase this this core interest of his which is to yeah. try and find that resolution
2: yeah no that's a great point I, th- I think that is something that would be easy to miss
1: yeah
0: definitely definitely and you know if you go if you go through and, and read the discussion on the reddit about these chapters that not not brought up there um just just another example of of some of the the deeper context being missed and why i think that this leads to this book having a different opinion
2: (laughs) hey that's why we're here right
0: yeah um any any other comments that anyone wants to add on on the the relational aspect of the early part of chapter four before we get into i suppose the next part would be um the 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 scene with his his daughter and him at the pizza parlor
2: yeah, I do. Just want to say for for Will's sake, the uh, the purple and green color scheme comes up again at their oh uh, yeah at their wedding with the popsicles that they're eating or the shaved ice or whatever it is.
1: Very important. Yeah,
2: I'm uh, keeping track of that.
0: And and also, <laughs> if there's anyone out there who makes mini dresses with Frank Zappa's face on them, um, I would love to purchase one. The the description of of that was 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 an excellent piece of a uh, piece of clothing it really is yeah <laughs> just a concept of a mini dress that has just a giant portrait of of frank zappa's face from the hemline all the way up to the neckline <laughs> <laughs> which which maybe that would look weird given that i also have a portrait of zappa tattooed on my arm but i i would still wear it
2: there's never enough zappa it's all good no never enough zappa <laughs> i
0: i do love how how commonly we bring him up on this show for seemingly
2: little reason it's hard not I honest, <laughs> like if you if you were to have if i had to make a list of like the most penchon-esque musical artists zappa is like the first one that will always come to my mind so, yeah
1: that's that's fair definitely um yeah. yeah before we move on to their meeting at the meeting i guess at the pizza parlor yeah um i i would like to kind of zoom in just a bit on The very peculiar relationship between zoid and his apparent best friend oh yeah because it says their friendship this is van meter by the way Mm -hmm. their friendship over the years was based in part on each other on each pretending to laugh at the other's hard luck and i you know there 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 were scenes in mason and dixon where you could you know, I, I sat around here pontificating on the beauty of a friendship. I don't think this one's universal. No, We've I I, no, I had friendships like this, but it's not. They're not normal.
2: No, it's not.
1: No that that is a that
0: is a unique kind of friendship that comes out of I think being in a band with somebody. Um, yeah, which, <laughs> which Zoid which Zoid was in a band with Fan Meter. Um, yeah, I I I have had friendships that are based out of, out of playing music together and I know a lot of people who have had similar friendships and that seems to be one of the, the highways where that, that occurs.
1: That's a great point.
0: So yeah, that, that, um, that gets to, to Zoid's panicked call over to the, the, the pizza place that his daughter <laughs> works at, which is just another very um, Pinchonian idea Idea or business that 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 you could come up with the idea that there would be this this pizza parlor that is based entirely in like a weird um movement of like uh I'm trying to think of what the 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 particular like buddhist movement in the 60s was that was popular like in the in Greenwich Village in New York
1: um Hari Krishna Yeah exactly yeah, like yeah, yeah. that's
0: yeah that's that's absolutely just overall the the vibe from here, the, the quote where it's introduced, um, I really enjoy where it says, Prairie worked at the Bodhidharma Pizza Temple, which a little smugly offered the most wholesome, not to mention the slowest fast food in the region. A classic example of the California pizza concept at its most misguided. <laughs> Zoid was both a certified pizza maniac and a cheapskate, but not once had he ever hustled Prairie for one nepotistic slice of the Bodhidharma product. Its sauce was all but crunchy, with fistfuls of herbs only marginally Italian and more appropriate in a cough-medded remedy. The rennetless <laughs> cheese reminded customers variously of bottle-fallen days or joint compound. And the options were all vegetables rigorously organic, whose high water content saturated long before it baked through a stone-ground 12-grain crust with the lightness and digestibility of a manhole cover. Oh um, god. I don't know what it is that, that Pinchon has for, for describing just awful pizza. The
2: worst food. Well, but... <laughs> he's a New Yorker,
0: that's what it is. Yeah. Yeah, this is two two books in a row where there is a description of an insane pizza. Um and this you're correct, Will, this does seem very much just like a man who lived in LA for a while and was like, why can't I get any fucking good pizza around here? <laughs> just just bleeding over into a book that he was writing um,
1: well, and i also just
0: yeah
1: The particular call out of herbs in a cough remedy yeah there are two ways to go with that <laughs> one is horrifying and it is like mint um and the other is honestly worse it's Jägermeister Ooh, oh god yeah. yeah that's yeah that's what i'm thinking when he said <sighs> that
2: God, yeah. What just... got me was the the rennetless cheese. Yeah, <laughs> because so, so for a little bit of, of context here, when my when my daughter was born, when she was young, she had she still has a, a lactose intolerance, and so we for a long time had to give her um, like vegan dairy products. And I don't know if either of you have ever had vegan cheese. I have it. It, it is honestly one of the worst things I've ever consumed in my life. Like it's, it's not all that bad. The ones, the ones we had absolutely were they yeah. to call it <laughs> cheese. It seems unfair um, <laughs> to anybody who makes or eats cheese. Um, it, you can't cook with it because it doesn't work like cheese. Mm-hmm. It's, um, it's I mean, it's a real just interesting concoction, but thankfully, we got around it, and she's able to we don't have to do that anymore. I don't have to eat that anymore so <laughs> but that part that part got me like that really put the taste in my mouth so
0: to 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 speak for the vegan somewhat, not that I am a vegan, but as someone who has flirted with veganism several times in her life. um there. That is that is a fair description of most vegan cheese. However, Tillamook, the actual like cheese producer, does have a a vegan cheese that I find very good. If
2: if anybody was going to make a good vegan cheese, I would put it on them. On the fine yeah. folks at Tillamook, not sponsoring yes. this show.
0: Yeah. Although, if you want to sponsor this show, like please, I will take all of the cheese. Absolutely, the cheese, the butter, everything.
1: Yeah, I mean they're up they're up where the where the hippies went. So yeah, yeah. I mean yeah the the newer like cashew milk based cheeses are kind of okay. They don't melt right like you said but they at least they taste okay.
2: Yeah. I guess at the end of the day that's what matters so.
1: But th- that's only been in the last like 7 years or so that it existed. So like most of it's terrible. <laughs> yeah. It like, tastes like bean paste.
3: Oh.
0: <laughs> I I do I do also love that he comes up with a way to describe a dough that is both incredibly soggy and also just it, it, mind-blowingly hard to eat <laughs> as well. Just yeah, simultaneously, that, yeah, yeah. That whole that whole paragraph is is just. It, I guess if I was to bring up like Pinchon's humor to somebody, like trying to describe his humor, that would potentially be one of the quotes that I would go to first
2: that oh, would be one of them the yeah, other one definitely. will come in a, in a little bit but uh, yeah yeah that's definitely one the other i do want to say the other food mentioned that that came up in here was the um the combination of captain crunch and diet pepsi oh um, yeah which is also just awful because and it's Ooh. not it's not described how those things are combined it just says sitting over a breakfast of captain crunch and diet pepsi i yeah. don't know if he's having them separately if he has poured the diet pepsi into the captain crunch Neither is a good choice. Yep. Um, but it's it's still a very unsettling image.
0: Yeah. But uh, and and just as we've talked about in the last episode, the the mass produced food and kind of what that led to, as far as not just the obesity epidemic, but just like what what were people eating? Like I definitely had some questionable meals in my childhood. That no, so that, that, that are...
2: also. I'm
0: sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say they're not far off from some of the stuff described in this book.
2: Yeah, I, I, well, that that also goes back to the 60s where they the the use of gelatin became very prevalent, and so they put fucking everything in gelatin. I'm
1: yeah. Sorry, do you have a problem with aspic? Aspic <laughs> is one of life's great pleasures. Is it, though? Aspic is important. Do you have a okay. problem with a single piece of broccoli suspended in the middle of a jello mold of a bunt pit? Bunt pan
2: that that i can do that they used to they put fish in there that's where you have to draw a line in the sand somewhere and it's there
0: yeah there there's a i don't i don't unfortunately don't know this person's name but there is a great instagram and i'm sure he's also on tiktok a guy who goes through recipes from like the 40s 50s and 60s when cookbooks started to become like a prevalent thing in american culture just making some of the insane recipes that people came up with out of, I guess, easy access to ingredients with the
1: development of grocery stores. Like, yeah, and
0: yeah, there's some crazy stuff in there. Um,
1: the, the only good one from that era is Chicken a la King, and that's still not great.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's fair. At least we know that Will's being paid by Big
1: Aspic now. Look, I knew they were still around somewhere, and one person is about what their budget can cover. <laughs> We're
2: not getting getting the Tillamook money yet, so we got to take more money. What sponsors we can get?
1: None of us are getting Aspic money other than Will,
2: either.
1: (laughs) Look, I promise you, we could not divide it up. (laughs) We we could afford, oh, I don't know, a a puppuccino.
0: Those are free.
1: I know. (laughs) Um, But you, you did overlook one other section in this chapter featuring food, <clears throat> which I'm just going to read because I think it isn't Is quite match tofu, pizza, but yeah. yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> the waitresses at La Boucheron affamé gathered over in a corner, murmuring, casting him slow over the shoulder looks. It was hard even for him to take as anything but pitying. Hi, ladies, how's the warm duck salad today? But nobody came forth with much more than mentions of ubiquitous, the one named Hector. Back on the freeway, Zoid kept a defensive eye out in all directions, no telling where the tube-maddened detox escapee might pop up. At his next stop, Hombolaya, amid stomach-nudging aromas from the special of the day, Tofu a la la (laughs) etouffée. Zoid hustled use of the office phone to call Doc deeply on the direct line into his wing of the Vineland Palace. I mean, Tofu a la etouffée. I love etouffee. I'd try it. It would probably just be mush. I
0: can't unless imagine you, what else it would be. Let's see, like deep fried the tofu.
1: That might be good. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I, again, speaking as the semi-vegan, tofu's tofu's pretty good. You prepare tofu in some fan, some, yeah. some pretty solid ways. <laughs>
2: I do just want to also shout out the two. Those two names of the restaurants are great. That's they really. Are
1: oh, yeah. That's, yeah. that's why I started so early before the food, because seriously, that's great.
0: Not just the two restaurants, too, but the two bars that it's mentioned, the one that he normally hangs out at, but the one that he decided to go to instead of in order to to escape mm-hmm. Hector. I wish I had the page marked, but those were also some excellent names for places. Um. It is also mentioned too that when she call or when that he calls his daughter at the restaurant, she is on a uh, meditation break, which just like <laughs> which just makes me again, like to the Hare Krishna point, like if you walk into this restaurant at the right time, is it just gonna be a bunch of people sitting around chanting Hare Krishna and like you can't even order the pizza? Is that why this is the slowest
1: fast food in town? Yeah. Like
2: yeah. <laughs> They have to finish their sound bath before they can yeah. do anything else.
1: <laughs> so that 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 section you were referring to, Kate, is uh, Zoid had only missed him that night by not showing up at the Lost Nugget, his usual hangout, <laughs> having chosen instead a booth way in the back of the Steam Donkey, just off yeah. the old plaza in Vineland. <laughs> the Steam Donkey is oh, excellent. God,
3: yeah,
0: uh, this is like a town I want to live in. Like it's yeah. such a it's such a weird like twin peaksy it's the toys. Tw- exactly oh, yeah yeah We yeah. yeah.
1: need to visit eugene oregon okay
0: i'm going to port <laughs> i'm going to portland next year so maybe we'll take a, a trip up to eugene there you
1: go yeah yeah there's a lot more to do in portland but you'll get your taste of these folks <laughs> <laughs>
0: um yeah so when when zoid uh calls he's he's basically just warning um his daughter about everything going on with hector but there is there is a line in here that I specifically wanted a spotlight that I liked, um, where when he is attempting to um, like warn her of what is going to happen or what could happen, and just to kind of like wait there until he shows up, um, she says just because they look evil dad doesn't mean they're any good for muscle if that's what you're thinking in reference to the the metal heads that her boyfriend hangs out with and that are going to come pick her up um which i i just i i love that as an inclusion because that is also in a lot of cases very true about about people in, in those communities they look scary uh if if you're someone who's i guess uninitiated or or is just ignorant but the, they're just they're just people like they're metalheads actually...
2: are some of the nicest people yeah. <laughs> i've ever met like genuinely nice yeah. people
0: absolutely um so that was the line that i wanted to make sure that that we circled over um and then yeah we we get we get another conversation um when he eventually gets to the restaurant that is is similarly tragic to the one that we talked about last week um in in some of the way that that uh, Prairie refers to her father, I know you had made some notes about this, Cody. If you want to expand on that,
2: uh, so this is uh, right after um, Isaiah two four and his friends came in, and he Isaiah said that he would protect Prairie. And uh, so th- the line that starts this is Prairie was and getting annoyed. What is this typical males? You're handing me back and forth like a side of beef. How about pork, Isaiah? Slightly to Zoid's relief. At least this unwise now actually trying to to poke her playfully in the ribs while she smacked his hand away. Good luck, young fella. Um, And then it goes on a little bit after that where she says... I'll start with the whole paragraph, because I think that's probably a good place to go. Uh, But all you ever date is this. Sorry, but really be material in terms of family skills. Girls you pick up when they're out on eating binges at the Arctic Circle drive-in. Girls from these weird after-hours clubs whose whole wardrobe is, like, totally black. Girls who inject cough syrup with biker boyfriends named, ah! In fact, lots of them girls I see in school every day. Know what I think? She'd rolled out of her lower bunk to stand and look at him in the face, level. Is that deal or no deal? you must have always loved my mom so much that if it couldn't be her, it wouldn't be anybody. Like I, Prairie is so good at bringing Zoid back down to reality. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I, I love that particular part. I also like her, her, you know, standing up and, you know, not letting Isaiah and Zoid be the ones to dictate like how she's going to, you know, who, who's going to protect her more. Like she's, you know, she's a, a grown woman at this point, and you know she can take care of herself, and she doesn't need these two dudes, you know, constantly doting around and trying to, you know, keep her safe when she can do that perfectly fine herself. So I, th- I think Prairie's kind of the uh, the unsung uh, hero of this of the whole story. I think she's the one that really does it the best job of of grounding Zoid and and really reminding him and humbling him when he needs to be humbled.
0: Yeah, and I, I also like what you you mentioned about her bringing him back down to earth because when she because for context for the listener like those quotes come from when Zoid actually arrives at at the restaurant, but when he calls ahead of time, uh, he he kind of spells out his fear about the stuff with Hector, and her response is basically just like, "Is this just hippie paranoia?" Mm-hmm. Like. And and specifically refers to I think she says geez with all that shit you smoke your mind must be like an etch a sketch, yeah. which which is like you know for someone reading Pinch on whether this is your first time through the book or not you kind of have this understanding that like Zoid's probably not all that you know unfounded in his paranoia but if you. Just look at the facts of what has happened so far. There isn't really anything for him to be that freaked out about. Like, yes, his ex-wife has disappeared from witness protection and he's been asked to help get her back. And Hector is running around trying to, like, run into him everywhere. Okay? Like, is that is that, like, if genuinely analyzing that from a standpoint of what has happened, is there really much of a reason for him to be that freaked out about it like she she very clearly is that stabilizing force for her father in a way that wasn't incredibly present until now but if you go back and i think read through the first two chapters with that in mind that is even present in 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 those conversations that they have as well
3: yeah yeah
1: Yeah, and I, i really like um i like the fact that you point out that you know she she's grown up you know she because the fact is that she is grown up in the sense that she can decide where the hell she goes, but <laughs> yeah. she is still a teenager. She is still like six, 15, 16 or something. That sounds and, right. And she yeah. is portraying that right in the middle of telling off her dad and boyfriend for being, you know, stupid. Um, she's it, she is also basically saying, "Look, don't you want don't don't you want to get back." With mom? Wouldn't, if you were me, wouldn't you want that too? Which is, as much as it is a, a fairly universal experience for children of divorce who didn't come out of a truly horrendous home, as much as that's fairly universal, it is also one that part of that universality is growing up and learning to accept it. And she hasn't reached that stage yet.
0: Oh, and and to be fair, neither has Zoid. No, exactly. That's
1: that's the extent which he hasn't grown up. It's not about not accepting death. It's that he hasn't accepted that, you know, he just has to move on without Furnessi.
0: So that gets to a a question that I had. What do you guys make of the scene at the bank when Zoid arrives and the the staff slash security of the bank greet him the way that they do?
1: Well, he keeps writing post-dated checks. Yeah. Right. (laughs) (laughs) It might be that simple. That they just don't want him anywhere close to them because he causes them so many headaches.
0: The funny thing though is they they don't appear to not want him anywhere nearby because they're trying to get him to come inside after they're closed. Um I'll I'll read the quote because it was another one of those ones that I just found really funny. Where it says, Feeling unprotected on all flanks, Zoid went speeding in, running lights and ignoring stop signs to Vineland, where he just made it to the door of the bank at closing time. An entry-level functionary in a suit who was refusing admission to other latecomers saw Zoid and, for the first time in history, nervously began to unlock the door for him, while inside colleagues at desks could be seen making long arms for the telephone. No, it wasn't pothead paranoia, but neither was Zoid about to step inside this bank. A security guard sauntered over, unsnapping his hip holster. Okay, Zoid split with a that's-all-folks wave, having luckily parked Trent's rig just around the corner. So obviously there is is the post-dated checks part and the fact that I think that... They're just trying to ensnare him to possibly get get him arrested, um, but I do think it's interesting that that scene happens just before we get another scene where he's he's accused of being paranoid. Where in this case he he probably has some legitimate fear of of hanging around given the given the response. But it was I did find that particular section quite funny. Um, yeah, in, in yeah. the description of his of his reception of just like. Oh, no, we can't let anyone else in. Oh, wait, get that guy in here right
2: get, now. <laughs> get him in here. We will <laughs> bust his ass. And also,
0: like, if you're writing that many post-dated checks, just cancel his account. Like, I feel like there are so many other ways that the bank could do this other than waiting for him to show up in like a sting operation.
1: Yeah, I get the sense that the, the, the sting operation of it all is a bit of a, a pothead paranoia thing. Sure, but that there isn't, you know, there it is inherently suspicious that the manager's like, "Come on in, Zoid."
0: Yeah, just the the idea that like, because there, you know, if if you, I'm sure a majority of our listeners have smoked pot at least one time in their life, but like, there is there is moments there where it does cause a distortion of reality, where like the the idea that he would see not one but multiple people reach for telephones, yeah. <laughs> is such a, is such a perfect encapsulation of of when you're having that kind of an experience on drugs where you're that paranoid is is just it's very accurate. Uh, it's it's one of those things that I love about Pynchon's writing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And if if you haven't, if you are one of the, uh, I imagine two people who listen to this podcast who have never smoked weed or had any kind of experience like that, it's like in the Crying of Lot Forty Nine talking about the sensitization thing. That's oh, what it yeah. is. Yeah. Yeah. It it is the sense of like you are being you you are being hypersensitive to nothing essentially,
3: right?
0: Um, I think that brings us to drumroll please Cody's crazy conspiracy corner.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't really have anything that juicy this week. Um, suffice Ooh. to say, I know <laughs> um, it's not mentioned. I was I I went to the wiki hoping that I could prove myself right about this, but it's not on there. But I just want to say, and I. Could be wrong, because this is my conspiracy time. Uh, The Rick and Chick characters, um, I don't remember if they were given last names off the top of my head or not. I feel like they were. No, they weren't. No. Uh, Rick and Chick uh, are, as far as I'm concerned, Tom and Ray Magliosi, Click and Clack, Tappet Brothers from NPR. Oh, crap. Um, (laughs) That just, like, I, I got those two in my head when I... When I read the description of him, was like, oh yeah, it's probably those two. So that's the voices I have. Is these like hyper exaggerated Bostonian uh, accents? But I don't know. It wouldn't be surprising if Pinchon listened to car talk. I think that's his. It would be in his wheelhouse. Like they had a very unique sense of humor. Yeah, Um, and they were super smart. Those guys both went to like. uh, They might have gone to MIT. They went somewhere really prestigious as far as school and i think they were or one of them was around the same age as Penchon. so um yeah i don't know go listen to find a way to listen to car talk it's not (laughs) on the radio anymore but that was a great show i absolutely that
1: was a great show i I still listen to it it's good yeah it's fantastic yeah i don't know I i think that's totally there especially when you keep in mind that like Their whole sense of humor, like you said, is weird and slightly pinchonian. It's pinchonian because like they are experts at making cars run. Yeah. And then normal people (laughs) called in and they would just harangue them over, you know, (laughs) basic like misunderstandings of how a car is supposed to function. And it's the kind of thing that is only truly hilarious if you understand exactly how wrong the callers are. And at the same time, he's not. they're not making fun of the callers. They're making fun of the fact that we're all driving these stupid things and none of us know how they work.
2: We're driving these incredibly complicated machines and have absolutely no concept of what makes them go.
0: Yep. Another, like, analog that that reminds me of is um, th- the show was not meant to be comedic, but Suze Orman used to have a late-night show where people would call in and ask whether or not it was a smart idea for them to buy something. And she would then proceed to go over their finances while they were on the phone and essentially harangue them over the stupidity of their financial decisions <laughs> and why it is that they thought it was necessary to purchase a Valentino purse or some other expensive yeah. expensive product. That is a subgenre of humor that is very enjoyable if you can find it. Who um who wants to talk about the Marquis de Sade? Well,
2: okay, before we get into that, because I do want to talk about that i mm-hmm. do just want to bring up the uh the fact that eusebio and vato had this like self mythologizing moment where they claimed that they uh used bigfoot as a means of of kidding um car parts essentially <laughs> so <laughs> i just want to read this paragraph just kills me uh today inspired by a wave of bigfoot sightings down in the matole vato, vato had nearly convinced the skeptical lookalikes That the Escondido had been found abandoned in a clearing, its owners frightened off by Bigfoot, in whose territory the car then sat, anybody's prize, making its retrieval by the boys, who just happened to be out in that part of the brush, an adventure full of perilous grades, narrow escapes, and kick-ass four-wheeling all the way, followed at each turn by the open-mouthed Rick and Chick, upon whom at last blood, usually the closer in these proceedings, laid. So Bigfoot being force majeure, we got the legal salvage rights. (laughs) Dazed, the twins were nodding at slightly different (laughs) rates. And another story of Twilight reconfiguration, soon to be the talk of the business, was about to get underway. Oh, I just, man. Bigfoot I, being force majeure.
1: It almost feels like Rick, Chick, Blood, and Banto are set up as, like, a who's on first kind of thing. Oh, and yeah. And then it just doesn't oh, yeah. come together at all. And I, I it, uh, Yeah, I just, I, I I'm always trying to read jokes into these paragraphs that aren't there.
0: Yeah, I think. So I think. Said, yeah. So, speaking of a joke in a paragraph <laughs> that is there, um, that that certainly brings us to the Marquis de Sade bit, which is, it, it's one of the funnier things that I think any of us have probably read it's, at one point or another.
2: This is up there with the mechanical duck scene, as far as <laughs> yeah. like I was in actual tears reading this.
0: Do you want to give a rundown, Cody? Um,
2: so essentially, like, I mean, the name. So basically just to summarize it the, there is a a uh, landscaper um that Zoid uh, will uh, work for from time to time who assumed the role of the original uh landscaper I think and uses the name Marquis de Sod SOD which is arguably the most brilliant business name I think that has ever existed Um, (laughs) but who who makes these commercials um, that are just really unbelievably hilarious um, featuring talking grass that speaks with an overly pretentious French accent
1: Um, we love it
2: we love it we can't (laughs) hear you Oh, my God. Do we maybe just
0: want to read that? (laughs) I don't think
2: I can without, like, losing my fucking mind. I
1: can. Okay. Go for it. Zoid needed cash and also some advice about a quick change of appearance, and both were available from the landscape contractor Zoid did some lawn and tree work for, Millard Hobbs. A former actor who'd begun as a company logo and ended up as majority owner of what had been a modest enough lawn care service, its founder, a reader of forbidden books, had named the Marquis de Sade. Originally, Millard had had only been hired to run, uh, hired to be in a couple of locally produced late night TV commercials, in which, holding a giant bullwhip, he appeared in knee socks, buckle shoes, cut off trousers, blouse, and platinum wig, all borrowed from his wife, Blodwin. Crabgrass won't be ev. He inquired in a species of French accent. Aha, uh-huh, no problem. Just call the Marquis de Sordes. Pretty soon the business was booming, expanding into pool and tree service, and so much profit rolling in that Millard one time thought to take a few points instead of the fee up front. People out in the non-tubal world began mistaking him for the real owner. By then, usually off on vacation someplace and Millard, being an actor, started believing them. Little by little, he kept buying in and learning the business, as well as elaborating the scripts of his commercials from those old split-thirties during the vampire shift to what were now often five-minute primetime movies. with music and special effects increasingly subbed out to artisans as far away as Marin in which the Marquis, his wardrobe now upgraded into an authentic 18th-century costume, might carry on a dialogue with some substandard lawn while lashing away at it with his bullwhip, each grass blade in extreme close-up being seen to have a face and little mouth, out of which in thousandfold echoplexed chorus would come piping, More! More! We love it! The Marquis, leaning down playfully, I can't hear you! Presently, the grass would start to sing the company jingle to Eight by then, post-disco arrangement of the Marseillaise. A lawn-servant to a lop tree and nobody meets marquis de Sade. Millard was known for spreading work around generously, and for paying in cash, and off the books, too. Half the equipment lot today was filled by a flatbed rig by some place down in the Mojave, whose load was a single giant rock charred, pitted, and streaked with metallic glazes. Wealthy customer, explained the marquee, wants it to look like a meteorite just missed his house.
3: (laughs) I love that.
0: What a strange request for a landscaping job, too.
1: (laughs) I just the other day drove by a house with an entire front lawn covered in flagstones. Weird. So Hmm. that's what's coming to my mind right now.
0: Why? What is the motivation?
1: I think it's the same as wanting to look like a meteor, meteor hit crash. crash. I, your house, I yeah. guess, sure. <laughs>
0: um, as far as, like, my, if I had a crackpot theory or, or crazy conspiracy corner, this was something that was brought up in, in context of us talking about this section of the book a few minutes ago. But, like, it, it is entirely possible that, that the Marquis de Sade bit is there just kind of as a joke. But it did... It and really nothing more, but it did remind me of just the the general idea of a someone famous for for what are essentially little TV movies suddenly becoming the head of a company did remind me a lot of Ronald Reagan going from being yeah. a a television actor. film actor to becoming the president of the United States. And just, wow,
2: what a concept. I You would imagine that would never possibly happen twice, right?
0: No, never. And certainly the second time around, he wouldn't use the slogan coined by the first time around. <laughs> um, Funny how
2: history repeats itself.
0: Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, I, 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 there's not much to point to the idea that that is what, what Pinchon is getting at, but it was certainly something no. that, that I thought of.
1: No, but it, it is similar in tone, and with, with you... What you thinking on the, the Reagan line of thinking? It reminded me that it's kind of similar to the adenoid section in Gravity's Rainbow.
3: Mm. Oh,
1: just in terms of like uh, a nothing ending up in charge of all of these different things and becoming the central focus. Yeah, which you know, not going to get into that, but uh, I think there are some uh, some some ways to connect that that blob with uh hitler and probably to also reagan
0: yeah definitely especially with the the like to to go deeper into this like weird idea the the specific mention that after he kind of became recognized as the head of the company that was when he started to learn the trade and suddenly became very adept at deploying you know different ways to use money or or to kind of expand that is obviously very much what happened with reagan after he was elected Mm -hmm. president we get another mention of Pat Sajak
3: everybody. I'm
0: Everyone's
1: favorite genial Sajak. Pat Sajak.
2: <laughs> yeah, is that,
1: that important?
2: I don't think. I mean, Wheel of Fortune was Wheel of Fortune, but like I don't know. I I do think it's funny that he's playing Frank Gorshin. That that's funny. Um <laughs> if anybody has not watched the old Adam West Batman series, do yourself a favor and carve out a few hours, because it's, it's a good it. one. Yeah. And Frank Gorshin was a, a pretty good Riddler.
1: Thank you. Couldn't <laughs> place him.
2: That's I, that's pretty much all he's known for. I don't know yeah. that he did much else outside of that. Um, not that I know of at all. Not like Frank, uh, what was Cesar Romero, who refused to to shave his mustache even though he was playing the Joker. <laughs> so it was just always there under his grease paint
0: oh man especially yeah just and and especially the fact that they went with that too just be like yeah, yeah surely not
2: we could recast it but why why, <laughs> why would we do let, that let him have his mustache it's fine. really really foreshadowing the
0: henry cavill controversy with his mustache yeah. in
2: justice league <laughs> yeah well, so I, I take it back Frank Gorshin was in some other stuff He was on Conan a whole bunch apparently really? He was in 12 Monkeys Oh weird Interesting That's
0: right, one I'm of the background One of the background people In the mental hospital
2: He's a doctor
3: <clears throat>
1: Interesting
2: Yeah So um,
1: well, So back to the point of all of this Yes um, I do <laughs> I Similarly to us missing uh, seeing Zoid and Fernesi meeting, we also don't see why Millard is handing Zoid the money. You know, we we presume that he's explained the situation to some extent, but all we really see is him like, hey, nobody's going to come and steal your... Nobody's going to come and prevent you from paying me back, right? Which he obviously doesn't care about the answer to because Zoid never pays anyone back. And then it's just in his hand i found that strange
0: yeah that is a good i i wasn't really able to parse out what what that was about either we also get um an additional aspect of of reagan's wet dream uh in in the the campaign against marijuana production uh which comes up just shortly after this this inclusion um yeah, says Trent, a sensitive poet artist from the city had moved up north here for his nerves, which at the moment were not at their most tranquil armored personnel carriers. Trent trying to scream and keep his voice down at the same time, which is also just what a description of someone speaking persons in full battle gear stomping through vegetable patches. Somebody said they shot Stokely's dog. I'm in here with a 30 odd six. I don't even know how to load Zoid. What's going on? wait easy partner now that sounds like camp meaning the infamous federal state campaign against marijuana production but it ain't quite the season yet. (laughs) the (laughs) the concept that they have a that they have a camp season where this this another group of jackbooted thugs rolls out and rounds up everybody's weed in order to get rid of it um is is like your note here says that's absolutely what reagan uh nancy reagan probably wanted dare to be
2: yeah yeah it's (laughs) this is so for for context for anyone who doesn't really know the dare i don't dare still happens i think kind of the same thing anyways this is yeah reagan reagan had this whole idea that it would you know we should go to war against drugs uh, which was woefully, uh, inept and pointless and continues to be, and has done way more harm than good. Yep. Um, and it's, I, I, yeah, that's absolutely, I think what's going on here is that's like Reagan, I think had this idea of like, you know, using the military to, uh, enforce this, this issue that wasn't really an issue until they made it one by, you know introducing crack into a majority african american populations for nefarious reasons but that's neither here nor there um but it's and again this is one of those central themes of the book is is the um this time period specifically the 80s when when you had these kind of like reaganomics and hardline ultra conservative um Wet dreams of like a totalitarian system that operates under the guise of being a democracy, um, which is always played as being like for the good of the people, but ultimately just like absolutely destroys the uh lower and most of the middle class. So it's you know. It's one of those I could go on and on about how much I fucking hate Reagan and his whole administration. Um but yeah, I've I've been rewatching the wire, so like the futility of the war on drugs is is, you know, never ending and just, you know, always in a in a different time period, wearing a different costume.
1: Yeah, and uh there's a this is this is a tangent off of your tangent essentially. So apologies to any listeners who find it insufferable. But um, relevant to all of this is that during the '70s, the the cause for the what was called the um oh what, was, what did they call it the drought or whatever that is featured in the beginning of chapter three when Hector's showing up and uh, Van assumes he's a weed dealer. Which is and also reasonable. brought up in Inherent Vice, too. To say, yeah, yeah. It's, it's the setting of Inherent Vice is that drought. The cause for that was actually because of some U.S. involvement with spraying Paraquat and other very dangerous um, herbicides on illegal marijuana fields south of the border. And that ties into just a lot of the, the little things that 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 play into a lot of this book. Whether it's you know the the, the artificial food or the, um, the just the talking about the helicopters that are part of camp. And camp was not part of <clears throat> that scheme, by the way. But it, it it's just it's there. It's in the background. It's in everybody's mind. Um in every of these in every one of these characters minds is that paraquat poisoning that was done by helicopters just like the camp helicopters
0: yeah i mean if nothing else important context i wouldn't say that that that, that would would not be something to include mm-hmm. um, it, we we also through the introduction of camp learn kind of what hector's weird i guess gambit is or what it's being being positioned as in that he's he's found a way to Flip the couple of ounces that that Zoid has of weed in his house into a claim that it's tons and they're now going to start using his home as a a headquarters for camp as this this season, so to speak, starts to essentially push, as I understand it, Zoid to help him make a film about his ex-wife. Um, th- this was a very strange uh sort of detour that it took after, after explaining that his house had more or less been repossessed. Um, what, what, do we, what do we think that this, that this is pointing towards? What, what are our thoughts on Hector's strange idea of making, making a film about uh, Furnessi and, and her, her old mob connections and things like that?
1: I, I see it as the, the capitulation of, like, everything that they're saying is wrong with Hector and with... Mm-hmm. Um, television addiction because in real life nobody does this but <laughs> same- you'd hope not <laughs> yeah but at the same time th- some people kind of do there are people who go around living their whole life thinking like um i just need i just need the rights for one good story and i'll off to the races i'm a great director just waiting to happen or just like the idea of this would be so crazy if it were on tv which is a quote I've heard before and I'm sure others have too. <laughs>
3: mm-hmm.
1: it, it, I think it it really is just like up until this point Hector's been weird but he's been weird in the kind of kooky television character kind of sense. He's, you know, yeah. he's silly. Here he is dysfunctional. Like he is I don't know, I don't I'm not sure actually if it does say that he is the one who spun it spun the couple of ounces out I think it's saying that Brock Vond did that.
0: Well, he's mentioning that that's what they're going to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah
1: sorry, I just I wasn't sure if you meant to say that. Yeah. Um, but it's just so over the top. It is such an unnecessary like position to put somebody in to try to get them to sign over their likeness rights. Whether he's involved in the actual raid or not, he knows all of this is going down. He could have just like asked Zoid right you know he thinks of him as a friend clearly i think i
0: think too like to look back to kind of the i guess analog to drug addiction that we were talking about before too there are some instances where somebody's addiction to something seems very harmless until suddenly it isn't um and i think like to to look specifically at i guess the easiest analog would be marijuana that is considered a non-habit forming drug which is true you don't get physically addicted to it but there are certainly people who are incapable of functioning without it for one reason or another and that's where it does step still into something of an addiction and when you see them without it or in, in a drought so to speak of it or or something else happens that that causes you to see exactly the the depth of that addiction i feel like there's some of that too in that like him using brock von's actions as an additional impetus to get, like you said, will just somebody's life rights for a movie that he wants to make really, uh, really gives off the, the vibe of someone scratching their neck, asking if somebody has an ounce, um, and just wanting, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, and, and wanting to do whatever they can to, to, to sort of step into that world even deeper. Um, there's certainly something else going on there I think in the, the very crazed And manic way that he's presenting himself In that scene Did we have anything else That we wanted to add to chapter 4
1: I do I do appreciate That the, the way that he is portraying The, the exact Fucked up dynamics of uh, Diet culture
3: mm.
1: Because mm-hmm. the the, the the screwed up parts of diet culture as we talk about it today is not like, you know, you can say it's about like, oh, it's fostering eating disorders or so you're, you know, you're supposed to be caring about how you look more than how you feel. whatever However you want to frame it, what it is, is everybody pointing out something to you over and over again. It, it is, you know, working at a place that is selling pizza that is, the opposite of pizza for supposed health benefits. <laughs> I think it, it it's very well discussed in this book, the way that yeah. culture formed in America yeah. and the way that it particularly affects young women. I think it's, it's very evocative.
0: Yeah, definitely. Although, I mean, like, hey, if there was a pizza that convinced me that getting around in a, in a circle to chant around a federal agent who's whacked out of his mind on hollywood idealism it's it's got to be pretty good pizza like maybe i'd give that a try
1: it's that Jaegermeister in the sauce again
0: yeah absolutely <laughs> it just gets you a little crazy <laughs> cody did you have anything else to add to chapter
2: four uh i don't think so no so maybe... that's
0: yeah that brings us to funny parts um we've covered a lot of them over the course of our discussion Uh was there anything else that anyone wanted to add?
2: I had two. The first being in the scene we just talked about, it's just a it's a throwaway joke. Um where it it just says Doc Deeply grooming his beard strode over high fiving Baba Hava Baba Hava Bananda on the way. Like just him like given that whole situation him just strolling through and like, as an aside, just like giving him a high five. It's just, <laughs> I don't know, just made me chuckle. That and, and the uh, uh, brilliantly corny uh, checks in the Mayo line.
0: Yeah, which is a line that I, anytime I read that or one of its derivatives like it is here, I just, I can't not think of the opening of Big Trouble in Little China, where <laughs> where kurt russell says the checks in the mail and then just takes the most absurd bite of a sandwich yeah. while speaking into a cv radio
2: there's apparently a name for that type of joke it was on the wiki let me um let me find it real quick because i didn't know that it was a thing it's called a a throwaway fig hoot in the '50s, a science fiction writer named uh, Grendel Brierton wrote a series of short, funny pieces for fantasy and science fiction magazine titled "Through Time and Space with Ferdinand Fagoot." They all worked the same way, establishing a silly and complicated storyline for the sole purpose of setting up a painfully outrageous pun. So, that's <laughs> obviously something that we see a lot in his work. So,
0: yeah, painfully outrageous pun might be my favorite description of a pun. <laughs> yeah. Um, I would say the one that I would want to add is the description of Zoid's house in Gordita Beach, where on the first page of chapter three, it says uh, he showed up first in Zoid's life shortly after Reagan was elected governor of California. Zoid was living down south and sharing a house in Gordita Beach with elements of a surf band he'd been playing keyboard in since junior high, the Corvairs, along with friends more and less transient. The house was so old that all of its termite clauses and code violations had been waived on the theory that the next moderate act of nature would finish it off. But, having been put up back during an era of over-design, it proved to be sturdier than it looked with its old stucco eat net to reveal generations of paint jobs in different beach-town pastels corroded by salt and petrochemical fogs that flowed in the summers onshore up the sand slopes. Just... That that specific phrase of uh, the termite clauses and code violations had been waived on the theory that the next moderate act of nature
1: would finish it off. Pretty
2: excellent. It's really good.
1: Yeah. A lot of the, the the funniest parts of this these sections to me come in very small doses. The, mm. the, they're just like little little twists on the the, the sincere element. Sure. But. One part that is purely comic that I love is, um... Alls I'd like to know is, will they be after your money? A familiar question around here. Subcontractor accounts collectively having more attachments on them than a vacuum cleaner. More liens, Zoid had once suggested, than the Tower of Pisa, to which Blodwin had had answered. More garnishes than a California burger. Spouses, ex-spouses, welfare, the bank, the lost nugget, haberdasheries, and faraway zip codes. It's what you all get for le. Leading these irregular lives Looks like it's what you get It's just it, it, Not only is the, the idea of a California burger being Covered in uh, bills Pretty funny But also it's what you get The person who keeps giving him money for some reason
3: Yeah
0: <laughs> So that brings us to Quotes Cody did you want to start
2: Sure um mine is i had several that i marked off but i'm gonna go with uh, this one from chapter three um <clears throat> it is on page 29 um and it starts i say va go on break your old compinche's heart here i thought you knew everything it turns out you don't know shit. grinning a stretched a terrible face it was the closest Hector got to feeling sorry for himself. This suggestion he liked to put out that among the fallen, he had fallen further than most, not in distance alone, but also in the quality of descent, having begun long ago concentrated and graceful as a skydiver, but the Tostada procedure was minor evidence. He growing less professional uh, the longer he fell, while, in his sk- while his skills as a field man depreciated. He had come with these falling years simply to rely on going in, trying to neutralize whoever was in there, whoever was there with a repertoire of assault it still ran from stupefy to obliterate, and if they were waiting for him one time and got in the first move, I'm ready, too bad. Hector sadly knew this wasn't anywhere near the samurai condition of always being on that perfect edge prepared to die, a feeling he'd known only a few times in his life long ago. Nowadays, with his, with his old fighting talents lapsed, what looked like simple impulse or will might as easily have been advanced self-hatred. Zoid, the big idealist, liked to believe that Hector remembered everybody he'd ever shot at, hit, missed, booked, questioned, rousted, double crossed, that each face was filed in his conscience, and the only way he could live with such a history was to take these chances with his own badass, upping the ante as he moved into his late mid career. This theory, at least, had kept Zoid from lying around hatching plots to assassinate Hector, as others had been known to waste hours of potentially productive lives doing. Hector was the kind of desperado whose ideal assassin was himself. He could choose the best method, time, and place and would always have the best motives for it, if anyone. I just think that's a great description of, of Hector as a character. Um, beautifully written and, and does a great job of really summarizing a lot of him in a very short amount of time.
1: Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, I, I really love it. And um, f- for uh, aside from the fact that it's, it's really ineffective way to convey this character at least how zoid sees him but it also does play into this concept of like the the cop in your head is Mm -hmm. is the phrase if if you don't know what that means you should look it up (laughs) i'm not gonna go into it but that that it really does nail that concept at the same time and i don't know if that's what pinchon was thinking but it, it does
0: Well, I think it's unlikely that I'm going to steal wills, so I won't force him to go next. Um, (laughs) if, if I was to pick like, and this is an exaggerated definition of quote, if I was to pick like my favorite quote from the book, it would be the extended monologue about their, their wedding ceremony and their, their marriage and everything. I I just, like I talked about at the top of the show, I think it's just absolutely excellent, but I'm going to pick one paragraph, um, from that where it says music was by the corvairs these days calling themselves surfadelic though the nearest surf at the moment was at santa cruz 40 miles away over farm roads and murderous mountain passes and they had to contend with the traditional beer rider haughtiness of the area still in later years triazoid might to remember everything in its most negative truth was there'd been no brawls or barfing or demolition derbies everybody had got along magically was one of the peak parties of his life folks loved the music and it went on all night and the next right on through the weekend pretty soon bikers and biker chicks playing at villainy were showing up in full regalia and then a hay wagon jammed full of back to nature acid heads from up the valley out of an old-fashioned hayride and eventually the sheriff who ended up doing the stroll a dance of his own day with three miniskirted skirted young beauties to a screaming electric arrangement of pipeline and who was kind enough not to go near let alone investigate the punch, but did accept a can of burgie, it being a warm day. I I really like that paragraph for a number of reasons. One, I think it kind of what we were talking about earlier about Zoid being this kind of hopeless romantic, not just for his relationship with Furnessi, but also for like the hippie ideal and the the dream of this like perfect future where everyone is just sort of. Everyone just sort of gets it, man, and just (laughs) is is just happy to be around each other. Like, it's clear that this was sort of an intersection for him of those two things where it suddenly it it seemed like it was really going to work out for him and that all of the things that he had been he had been working towards that that fig tree analogy that will spoke about really came to head where those two things intersected this world that he'd created for himself and the woman that he he'd ended up loving out of it. The other interesting thing that comes to mind in reading that section that I was reminded of once again as a connection to inherent vice is specifically the line um pretty soon bikers and biker chicks playing at villainy were showing up in full regalia, and it says that they were playing at um playing at violence or playing at you know something something negative and and so it rem- remembers that nothing actually happened like they didn't there was no fights there's no brawls there's a monologue in Uh, inherent vice where it talks about how doc is noticing that that more and more of these like hippie gatherings in particular the the spotted dick party that he goes to he's been seeing these like older men that are kind of stylized as these these biker club members or these these um aryan brotherhood members as they are in that book who are kind of there to sort of break up the the countercultural movement and they they were kind of creating a a force in response to the counterforce that they, that they realized and that he'd been noticing these people showing up more and more and how it seemed to signal to him that the, the, the dream was kind of about to end. I, I think is very interesting how the opposite imagery, well, the same imagery is invoked here, but it has the, the opposite end result and where that kind of points to these two characters in relation to one another and where their, their mental states are at. Um, yeah, it, it's it's a simple paragraph, but there's a lot to unpack there in context of the character, but also just Pinchon's writing as a whole.
1: Yeah, and the difference in time period there, because this is the flashback to their wedding, I mean, we're talking about, a, like a what, two years difference between the yeah. story of that scene and Inherent Vice?
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: All right, well, you came really close to stealing mine. Oh! Okay. oh. Because I'm going with the two paragraphs preceding that. Okay. Zoid had grown up in the San Joaquin, ridden with the Bud Warriors and later the Ambassadors, gone on many an immortally lunatic grudge run, as Dick Dale might say, through the pre suburban citrus groves and pepper fields, lost a high percentage of his classmates, blank rectangles in the yearbooks, to drunk driving or failed machinery, and would eventually return to the same sunny, often he could swear haunted landscape to get married. One afternoon on a smooth gold green California hillside, with oak and darker patches of freeway in the distance, dogs and children playing and running, and the sky for many of the guests a wriggle with patterns of many colours, some indescribable. Fernzie Margaret Zoid, Herbert, will you, for real, in trouble or in trippiness, promise to remain, always on the groovy high known as love, and so forth? It may have taken hours or been over in half a minute, there were few if any timepieces among those assembled, and nobody seemed restless, this after all being the mellow sixties, a slower moving time, pre-digital, not yet so cut into pieces, not even by television. It would be easy to remember the day as a soft focus shot. The kind to be seen on sensitivity greeting cards in another few years. Everything in nature, every living being in the hillside that day, strange as it sounded later whenever Zoid tried to tell about it, was gentle at peace. The visible world was a sunlit sheep farm. War in Vietnam, murder as an instrument of American politics, black neighborhoods torched to ashes and death, all must have been off on some other planet. Um, And I don't... I don't have... Anything to dig out of that, except that it is entirely engrossing to me. when I read mm-hmm. that, I love it. it It is just it is a perfect depiction of of what's going through Zoid's head at this moment. And that's mm-hmm. you know, like I said, I don't have anything to say about it. It's just beautiful.
2: It really is,
0: yeah, it absolutely is that that was a contender for for one of my choices too i'm I'm sure. <laughs>
1: Because I, I considered the one that you chose as well.
0: Uh, most pinch-on part? Do we have any specific things that stand out there?
2: Marquis de Sade for me.
0: Yeah, that's that's fair. I think mine would be just the, the, the pizza restaurant that, that the Prairie pizza Works at. Too. Yeah, and just everything that that represents.
1: Mine might be just the brief flashback to Zoid, telling prairie about his astral projections oh that is, sure that yeah. just feels like i don't know who else would dedicate like a paragraph to a weird hypnagogic scene that doesn't have any impact on anything except for you know going the extra step to tell you how much zoid believes in his love
0: Hmm. well that brings us to listener questions and comments, which we actually have more than we've ever had for a yeah. single episode, which is
2: really, really awesome. Um, Cody, do you want to start by reading the email that we got? Sure, sure. So this is, is, is kind of a long one, and there's kind of a lot to unpack here. So we'll, I'll read through the whole thing, and then we'll kind of go through uh, the different parts of it uh, little by little. So this is an email from Nick. Uh, it says, hey, so glad you're doing this one. I read it last year and was pleasantly surprised by its warmth and hope, wishful and wobbly as it may be. I ended up writing some criticism about it, too, if you're interested. Dazzling Symmetries, Zero Expectations. Uh, we'll, I'll post a link to uh, his essay in the show notes, so I would please go out and read it. I unfortunately have not had time to read it since uh, Nick sent it over, so Nick, I apologize. Um, I will get on that because I'm very interested in reading it. Um, I know Luke read it, and he, he really liked it, so we'll come back and, and address it maybe in the next episode. Um, but anyways, Nick goes on to say, one thing that's always confounded me about Pynchon and something present in Vineland is what you term, quote, zaniness in the episode on chapters one and two. I've never been charmed by anything zany, see also satirical, slapstick, gonzo, etc., in Pynchon's work, in part because the jokes are so self-conscious, more worthy of a cringe or wince than a laugh, in effect magnified by how much Pynchon nerds celebrate and ape this sense of humor. Despite this... I think it might actually be an effective form of critique in the sense that the things meriting parody are usually idiotic themselves, creating a kind of fight fire with fire logic You can better expose the idiocy by allowing yourself to be idiotic. How does this compare to attempts to laugh at something stupid through a more highbrow approach? Are those critiques doomed to come off as snooty or pretentious? What about a more sober, explicit critique, just saying why the dumb thing is dumb rather than enacting it in a joke's effect? And is critique even the point if Penchon reserves some joy for the systems he also despises? Is the sugar cereal an opportunity for critique, or can we let it simply be part of the texture of the kinship bond we're witnessing? At a larger, more abstract level, what is Pynchon's relationship to the systems that govern our lives and their representative objects, e.g. sugar cereal? My essay tries to think through this, but I'm not sure where I land on the matter, and I'd be curious to hear you guys tackle these questions. Another request... Please excerpt the audiobook guide doing Hector Eniga's dialogue. I'm just imagining the foos-gone-wild-joker accent. In a similar vein, I highly recommend sampling William Gibson's reading of Neuromancer. He has this ancient stoner stuffy nose quality to his voice that's distracting and charming in equal measure, and he fearlessly bumbles the Babylonian patois that appears in the book's final third. With appreciation from the home of Oedipus, Nick. Um, so I will just quickly address the audiobook thing. I don't think we can do that because that would probably create some sort of a copyright issue that might get the episode taken down. Um, so if anybody has access to the audiobook, I guess go listen to it because I can imagine uh, that that's got to be something else to hear actors and Nick's dialogue. Um, but let's yeah, let's uh, let's kind of go through these uh, these points that Nick brings up.
0: I think that and we kind of talked about it a bit last week, I want to say, where we we mentioned like, you know, that's kind of the fun of postmodernism is is that something that means something deeper or is that just a thing that's there? Right. And I don't I don't think that there is necessarily an answer one way or the other. I think that the best like the, the cleanest mapping that I can make to anything we've already talked about was. Was when you had brought up your your uh, supposedly crackpot theory with the music relating to the fake glass, and then I had kind of mentioned like the the thematic or not the the not the the plot driven aspect of why that's there. And they're kind of trying to trap him in this in this scheme, and then Will very intelligently followed that up by by basically saying like I, both of those things are true at once. There is the plot there's the plot driven aspect of it and then there's this also this thematic aspect that relates to the decade and 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 deeper things going on there. I think the same thing could be true to something like sugar cereal for example. Like is it is it something that's adding to the texture of the the bond that we're witnessing to use his his words? Yeah, absolutely. Could it also be hinting at something else that is either table setting for the decade that the book is written in or something you know more specifically thematic that pinch on is trying to get at absolutely true as well and and because of the fact that a lot of this stuff is not explicitly on the page whether it's vineland or you know mason and dixon or looking at other postmodern authors the stuff that they've written it's part of the enjoyment of being able to to go through and read these books and kind of dig out what meaning you you can pull out of the text like not to get too like literary criticism death of the author new school on it but that is part of of the enjoyment of reading these books and part of the reason why this this podcast exists uh as a whole but i do think that you do run the risk in in any event of going far too deep into that of just like let's let's take apart every single sentence and see what he's really trying to get at. Like you can easily you can easily fall down that rabbit hole as well.
3: Yeah.
2: I would I would say in in response to the um the the, the zaniness issue um I, I think you're you're right on with with your idea that um it's I think I, I have to back this up and say that I think that the the zaniness of Pinchon's humor, and not just him, but I think the overall sort of zany comedy um, requires a very deft hand and a very sharp sense of humor to make it land. If it's if it's overdone, it becomes obnoxious and completely destroys its own purpose um and if it's not strong enough then you lose the opportunity to satirize what it is you're trying to satirize and i think to give an example i think of each of those two independent uh situations when you're when you go too far you end up with a um a situation where like those uh the 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 spoof movies they did in the late 2000s where you know the the epic movie and the date movie and all that shit yeah that's going too far like that is you're trying to show how inane and and sort of uh inherently dumb something is by lampooning it but you're doing it. You're you're overshooting it so much that no one sees that. They just see you being an idiot even more. The opposite end of that, where you're trying to be zany and satirize something, but you completely miss the point, or not not miss the point, but you uh, you don't make it zany enough to where the the parody is caught. Is the Beastie Boys "Fight for Your Right" song and video? Okay, yeah. <laughs> where they were trying to make fun of that that whole frat boy thing in in the late '80s, early '90s, but no one got it because they were almost too sincere about it. And so, if they had ratcheted up the zaniness a little bit, I think they could have landed that joke. But instead, it backfired so badly on them that they it just ended up hating the entire, almost the entire album. Um, but specifically that song, like it became a huge thing for them of like, we fucked up and we did not, this did not land the way we wanted it to. And everybody missed the point. So I think you have to strike the right balance of that. And I think Penchon does that. Are there times where it's, it's cringy or I wince? Sure. Absolutely. It's never perfect. There are absolutely those kind of situations. But I think, especially in a book like Vineland, when you're trying to show, how ridiculous something like the war on drugs was, or the um, gendered product placement that occurred throughout that time and still occurs. I think it it merits that that level of zaniness in order for us as a reader, especially those of us who weren't alive at that time or didn't experience that in in other countries, because again, a lot of this is uniquely American. Um, so I think having that level of, of quote unquote zaniness really helps drive that joke home. And so I think that's ultimately where I land on that.
1: Um, okay. Uh, I could talk about these questions for hours. I'm not exaggerating. I might oh, I could be... too. No, I mean like, so I, the, the question of what the purpose of zaniness in Finchon's work is something that I've spent way too much time thinking about. And I think the, the quickest way I can communicate the purpose is by giving homework to everybody and saying, to, by the next episode, go read V and go read The Recognitions by William Gaddis. All right. Read those two it's books only... back to back, and you will see the 1500
2: purpose. 1,500 pages of
1: text. Yeah. You will see the purpose <laughs> of Pinch and Zanius. Because it's not necessarily a matter of like too much zane or too little zane. What it what it comes down to is the purpose of the jokes. If you want to look at the Kenosha kid thing, if you want to look at um, checks in the Mayo, if you want to look at the the goofy names, almost always those are used as a way to break the tension. Of a truly, like, a, what in any other author's work would be a darkest hour of the heart scene. The, the, they are always, or almost always used for the purpose of basically uniting the form of the actual words chosen with the truly absurd aspects of society which he is trying to lampoon, so that you can then later. See those atomized elements, those atomized letters and words, as reconfigured into the rest of the story. And that it, it, it is something where I hate the jokes. I truly don't like the jokes in Pynchon's books. Um, some of them I think are fucking hilarious regardless of the fact that they, I still find them unsatisfactory as jokes. But the reason I find them funny is because of the degree of effort put into coming to the punchline. And at that point it stops being comedy within the dichotomy between tragedy and comedy. It, it has become a meta-comedy uh, It is an anti-humor that has taken the next step of saying, Yeah, this is still a joke. It's just a horrible joke, and I'm going to draw how- Draw in front of you how I came to the conclusion of this joke. So that you have to sit here and see that every part of our lives is full of this kind of insipidity every second of every day. I think that it is both much deeper and much less deep. Than than uh, people usually talk about it, and I think that there is, in terms of his uh, most e- egregious works, um, like *The Gravity's Rainbow*, *Mason and Dixon*, *Against the Day*. It is, and probably in *Bleeding Edge*, which again I have not read yet. Uh, it comes down to an almost uh, a camouflage element. Not necessarily in the sense that, you know, oh, Pynchon knows these secrets and he'll get arrested if he says this. But more that most people are not going to engage on the level which he needs you to engage on to actually criticize these things. So what he does is he lays these little Easter eggs in the jokes so that they stick around in your mind. And when you come back to the book, you come back to him looking for the jokes, if you like that sense of humor, or if you just find it ridiculous, you at least have that in your mind. And it's something that anchors you to the work as a work, not as a, like, as a story in some transcendent sense or as, like, a, a work of genius in some, like, oh, pension is important kind of way. But as a, this is a book, this is a joke, this is a, you are reading words that are stupid. You understand that, don't you? You are a person reading words. I think that's as much as I'm, going to get without going off in very random directions.
0: <laughs> I think you've provided a very nice summary.
1: Sorry, I just wanted to grab the title of that essay. Um, Dazzling Symmetries, the essay from the, the listener Nick who wrote in. I, I gave it a first Passover. I haven't fully digested it. Um, I really enjoyed it, but I will just say for anybody who is interested in reading it, don't start it until you've finished reading Vineland. Because it does... Oh have major spoilers um and it's good it's a great essay um but yeah just just a heads up
0: yeah and I, i think funny enough cody too the getting to like your point about the really bad like dude bro spoof movies of the early 2000s you could also say that the other equivalent not just necessarily the beastie boys music video would be the original spoof movies that inspired those crappy yep. ones in the early yep. in the early two thousands. Scary movie
2: was not bad. But yeah, but even that I mean, came even, after
0: it. Even going further back to like the Zucker movies, you know, oh, yeah, like, yeah, like Naked Gun or Top Secret, because it was like
2: it was nuanced. They they knew yeah. where to where to stop. And also, I I I I think I want to finish my statement by just saying that I don't necessarily now that I'm thinking about it more. I don't think Pinchon, I don't think zany is the right word. When I hear zany, I think of like the Marx Brothers or Monty Python, where it was like unhinged and, and uh, there was like almost an anarchy to it. It was chaotic, but controlled enough to not go off the rails. And I mean, some later Monty Python did. Um, that's what I think of as, as zany. I, I don't think Pinchon is zany. I, th- I certainly think it's over the top at times and, and some of the other, you know, slapstick and, and stuff like that. Sure. I don't know that I would, I don't think zany necessarily is the right word there, but I, I, get what, I get what Nick is getting at. Yeah, I can definitely see how that, that word would be applied
0: popularly for sure. Um,
1: I'd call it zany. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Will, do you
0: want to read the Twitter, the first Twitter comment we have?
1: Sure. So this is from at Sportsball on Twitter. Uh, I'm really enjoying your Mason and Dixon series. I'm like 40 hours in, and each time you mention you can email us. I think I should let them know I'm enjoying it. Thank you. We appreciate it. We even appreciate meta-commentary on your own lack of commentary. Yeah, that's great stuff.
2: He thought that they should email us, but then decided to hit us up on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. I just love that. Uh,
3: thank
0: you. Yeah, thank you so much. We always appreciate any comments. Um, from Steve Weddle Books on Instagram, they just say, love the work y'all are doing. Thank you, Steve. I assume your last name is Weddle, or Books maybe is your last name. Maybe Weddle's your middle Weddle name. Books.
3: Yeah, <laughs> Steve Weddle Books. <laughs> I Thank you for the compliment, Steve. Cody, do you want to read yeah. the Reddit comment?
2: Yeah. So um, from... Uh, um, hold on a second so I can read. I got to separate these because my eyes aren't working anymore. Uh, Iyanami dream sequence on Reddit. Uh, great stuff. We did a group read on Vineland a few years ago on the sub, and I enjoyed digging deeper into it then. Looking forward to what you have to say as we make our way through. And a long overdue, really great job with the podcast, as has been a lot of fun to listen to thus far. Keep fighting the good fight. Thank you. Um, Vineland was one that, yeah, we we had talked early on about, excuse me, about jumping into early. And I'm glad that we did. And I'm glad that we're uh, able to add to the conversation.
0: Yeah, the desperately needed conversation. I guess everyone was just maybe intimidated by the fact that our emails for Mason and Dixon were all from Brett. They're just like, well, I
1: don't want to really.
2: <laughs> Brett has yet to email us, Brett. <laughs>
1: yeah, uh, Brett, why aren't you writing a book on Vineland, too?
2: Yeah, we need
0: it. Wait, didn't, we, didn't we posit that we would be writing the book I on think Vineland so. next yeah. episode?
2: <laughs> yeah, you know. never mind. Brett, don't take our money. We need it. Yeah, yeah,
0: cheese yeah. money. I'm sure there's so much money in, in, there's... in writing a Vineland <laughs> companion.
2: Vineland companion books, yeah. confident in it. Yeah. Our, our Tillamook money is not going to cover all of our expenses.
1: Well, we also have the Aspic money. The Aspic for... money. No, <laughs> Will's
2: hoarding all that.
1: All $5 a month.
0: Uh, and then, Will, do you want to read our last Reddit comment?
1: Sure. Uh, and this is from NN underscore NN, which I imagine is supposed to be a blinking an, or an ascii face. art <clears throat> loving the 80s synth pop discussion haha and uh, as somebody who was not a big part of the 80s synth pop discussion i can say it was enjoyable to listen to so yeah
0: i can yeah everybody listen to 80s synth pop it was a, a genre i slept on for way too long in my life before i finally listened to some of it
1: and once you're done should, with that then you can move on to talk talks good music
2: i should <laughs> clarify that my comments on the uh the sterilized music what i was referring to specifically was was more of the um power rock i guess that was uh coming up that was losing its edge synth pop i i i do have a soft spot for and it is also a genre that i somewhat more recently got into but um soft cell i did do my homework Kate, I did listen to some soft. So, yeah. um, I was enjoying it. It was, it was, there was some good stuff in there. Um, yeah. there was a lot of there. So I, I have, my kids have overheard my wife and I at times talk about how the eighties was just a bizarre, um, weird time in which there was not much redemptive that came out of it. That's not true. There was really, truly a lot of awesome, uh, music and film and art in general that came out of the eighties. So, yes. um, don't dismiss everything that came out of there because there's really a lot of really cool stuff. I just had a problem with what was super popular at the time, um and was pushing itself up into the the kind of mainstream uh of the culture. But the underground music of the eighties, absolutely choice stuff.
0: Yeah. Also, uh now that you've listened to Soft Cell um you should listen to a flock of seagulls self-titled record that's a legitimately um, like, good album it is like, it is I a have legitimately good album. album yeah that that is a band that was uh unfairly maligned for their hair yep. mostly um unfairly well, and...
2: maligned for their hair i think
0: <laughs> well yeah, a, it that, is, that has no bearing on the quality of the music they were it recording
1: doesn't.
2: i'm not <laughs> saying it does, it does.
1: like they're wearing a helmet backwards yep <laughs>
0: but um like everybody's heard the the major single off of that that record i ran so far away but like the rest of that album is is amazing like from from front to back yeah
2: yeah i think that should be maybe a new segment we have on here because we couldn't really do it with mason and dixon but we can with this of uh like an album that you should that it should be like listener homework like go listen to this album or go listen to this band um that kind of Defined part of the '80s. Yeah, there
0: you go. So last week was soft Cell.
2: This week is a flock oh, of seagulls. Flock of seagulls. <laughs> yeah, I'll throw in. Uh, go listen to some Sonic Youth '80s Sonic Youth. There's there, that's some really good stuff. Yeah, it's yeah, not I'm bad. Looking up
1: what's what album Swans released in '84. Oh, okay, is great. Yeah, just to be a counterpoint to the synth pop.
2: Yeah, the the noisiest abrasive music possible. <laughs> Would that have been
0: song um, yeah, soundtrack cop. for the deaf.
1: No, that's cop. Yeah, don't listen okay. to cop. <laughs> Never mind, I take it back. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind, I take it.
0: Uh you could listen to to Killing Joke. Oh, uh Killing good, yeah. That would be that would be a bit of a harder edged, but still very eighties
2: band. Yeah. Yeah. I'll throw out one uh good punk, eighties punk. Uh, go listen to Who's Gerdo. Yeah, there you go. If you want some fast-ass, loud-ass music, Husker Du will, will absolutely scratch that itch.
0: Yeah, that, that's, that's a good one. Um, from a metal perspective, I gotta... I
2: mean, you could a go the easy of... thrash metal of, you know, like Metallica, Slayer, Megadeth. That would be easy, though. Uh, uh, that would be lame. I'd say, like, maybe Napalm Death. What else I have to really search my mind right now for
3: napalm death. Like if you
0: want to talk about like death metal, like morbid angel um, or just death, uh, Ooh. death is the uh, freaking scream. Bloody gore is such a good record. Um, I could listen to that album like any day of the week. Same with leprosy. But you can't really go wrong with any of death's records. Really? Like they're all good individual thought patterns is the record they made when they were kind of like, man, we don't really have to sing about like pestilence and like death. We can think of sing about other stuff. Um, but yeah, like anything, anything by death is really good. Yeah. Morbid angel. It's amazing. Um, yeah, there's a lot of really great eighties metal stuff, but those would be, those would be my recommendations in that, in that direction.
2: All right. Well, there you go. Go do your homework folks and let us know what you think of all that
0: read the recognitions uh also <laughs> read, read v. recognitions
1: and v
2: yep
0: uh In listen week. to a, a flock of seagulls all of sonic youth's 80s output um Don't uh, you, <laughs> can, you can you can skip songs.
2: you can skip the first uh sonic Youth. i right, start with uh bad moon rising maybe
0: that's a fair place to start with sonic youth yeah
2: um what else do we say yeah listen to napalm
0: death this the self titled is really good listen to your do? go get listen to zen, Ar- listen to zen
2: arcade it. arguably the greatest double album ever made I, I can't agree with that assessment but it's a great it's I, a great i said record. arguably i said arguably <laughs> i could probably if i i could think of more for sure best punk double album because there's only like two of those yeah that's I did, fair
1: i didn't even know about confusion is sex
2: It's okay. I will say this Brother James on that album is good. It's their like live best song. I absolutely love that song live. But Confusion of Sex as a whole, honestly, like as much as I love Sonic Youth, and they're like one of my favorite bands, they really, when Steve Shelley joined the band, is when they really got their feet on the ground. That's true.
0: In case any of our listeners knew, we could also just do a music podcast. We
2: could just talk <laughs> about music for another few hours, sure. Oh, uh,
0: but <laughs> I think we should probably call it for this episode yeah, there. Yeah. All right. I think that'll do it for us this week. Uh, we'll see you guys next week when we
3: come back and cover chapters five through six. Bye. See ya. Bye.
2: Okay, so quick story here, because this is now this is in my brain again. Yeah. Uh two years ago. Yeah, two years ago, uh my my son got invited to a birthday party. And so I took him and this was ironically enough, this was also the same day I took him to see Built the Spill. So I was really looking forward to that. Mm-hmm. But I wasn't looking forward to going to a birthday party because I don't like other parents. Oh. So we get to this this kid's house and he immediately, you know, he runs off with his friends, it's whatever. Normally in these kind of situations, my wife is with me and I, I have that grounding. I have a person there that I like spending time with and that keeps me from being uh, anxious and awkward. Mm -hmm. She wasn't there. So I'm just like shuffling around. I know none of these people. I don't know what to do. So I'm just like aimlessly wandering around. And then at some point this kid's dad comes over. He's like, Hey, we're hanging out in my man cave. Do you want to come? And as soon as the words man cave left his mouth, I was like, I don't, but I don't know what else to do. (laughs) So we go into what it literally is a, a converted shed, um, had, I mean, just concrete floor. Um, there was a, there legitimately was a fight club poster was the first thing I saw when I walked in there. Um, and there was a Scarface poster, a Boondock Saints poster, and I don't remember what the other, there was a couple more, like UFC <laughs> something or others. And I'm just like, this is the worst. And they're playing darts on like one of those cheap electronic dart boards. And he had, uh, God, it was probably like Bud Light on, on tap. <laughs> Which what I quit fuck? drinking years ago, so that didn't mean anything to me. But he also had uh It should mean his, something to you. It sh- I mean it means something when other people are drinking it. Yeah. Yeah. He had uh, he had a YouTube playlist on this like a TV the size of my computer monitor that was wall mounted for whatever reason. Um and it was playing like kid rock and red hot chili peppers and Matchbox 20, and it was just Like I was stuck in there for an inordinate amount of time because I didn't know what else to do. And I was like, if I leave, these guys are going to like get mad at me and want to fight me because that's what they do. I don't know. And so I'm like nervously checking my phone every couple of minutes. Like, is it time? Can I just say we have to go? And so finally, I was just like, I can't do this anymore. This is so surreal and weird. I have to leave. So I just grabbed my son. I was like, we're going to, we're going to go downtown and eat before the show. It's like three o'clock in the afternoon.
1: That's amazing. Oh. Oh, it I, was I, wow. It that's was otherworldly. Like the, it's like the most stereotypical man cave. I it ever. was a Boondock Saints
2: poster, man. Yeah. That's the cherry. Yeah. I wanted to get pictures of it. I was like, I know if I try to take pictures, they're going to ask what I'm doing. And uh, I can't dude, explain you, you my way out of it.
1: Said, you should have said, I like, love I need how you inspiration. Set this up. Yeah. yeah. I'm putting it on my inspo board.
2: <laughs> I'm going to tell my wife what's up, and I'm going to make her let me have a man cave.
0: Oh, God. I'm going to go like... to Home
1: Depot right now. <laughs>
0: I feel like if someone were to just use the phrase "man cave," like that, that would be the image that most yeah. people would have. In that's,
2: the yes. that's the Shutterstock image that's of man exactly cave. Yes.
1: I mean like a bowl of loose nuts, maybe. Oh, <laughs>
3: um.